Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to another episode of GTP Keeper Radio. Uh, this is Bill Stiegel. Well, listeners, as so often it happens in life, I have both good and bad news for you this evening. The bad news is that Sir Buddy will not be joining us tonight. Now, don't worry, listeners, Buddy's okay. He's just extremely busy. He's tied down with some of his clinical rotations this month, and he will absolutely return for the next episode of GTP Keeper Radio. Well, I told you there was some good news. And it's almost like we're going to have two two guests on the show tonight instead of one. That's right, two guests for the price of one. Taking the place of Mr. Buddy Buscemi is my good friend, Eric Burke. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Well, really, really, that's that's plenty from the studio audience. Uh, a very well deserved. Int- uh, introduction for Eric Burke. Uh, as many of you know, uh, Eric is the co-host with Owen McIntyre of the insanely popular weekly radio show, Morelia Python Radio. Uh, Eric and, and Owen are also administrators of the Facebook uh, group Morelia Pick of the Week, which currently has over 4,000 members. Um, what else about Eric? He's the owner of EB Morelia, uh, and he's obviously one of the backbone members of the, the Morelia community. The family, as Julie calls it. I kind of like that, the family. So um, before uh, I bring Eric on, I think it's uh, fitting to acknowledge the recent tragedy in France uh, where more than 150 innocent people lost their lives to a group of cowardly, radical terrorists. Uh, I don't know if there are any of our listeners in France, but I know uh, Buddy would agree that our thoughts and prayers uh, are with your country and all our, our European allies, uh, it may certainly get worse there and here before it gets better. So uh, because we have the, the freedom, our societies are able to enjoy things like GTP Keeper Radio. And I'd just like to acknowledge that. And uh, again, our, our thoughts and prayers are for the, the people over in France right now. So without uh, further ado, let's bring our guest host tonight, uh, Eric Burke. Eric, are you wow, there? Buddy. Wow, Bill, that was quite an introduction. I, I, I'm used to Owen just usually, you know, giving me a smack or something. <laughs> it's like, wow. That's, that's, that's. The studio audience uh, agrees. I am uh, honored to be on GTP Keeper Radio. I've been practicing that one, so. <laughs> you knew I was going to make you say it, didn't you? <laughs> I got that out of the way real quick, so there you go. 
Well, you're kind of out of your element here, Eric. Right, but not really. Shows a show. I mean, come on. Yeah, it's it's kind of weird being in the uh, in the passenger seat. You know, I've never been in this side of it, so uh, you know, hopefully, uh, I do okay. You don't have control of the studio. I mean, do you feel you feel kind of naked? I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah usually I'm muting Owen and uh, you know sending him messages, and you know now it's just kind of like okay, <laughs> just sit back and talk Condros, you know. So all right. That's why we're here. Um, why don't you? I think a lot of the listeners are, are familiar with you and familiar with uh, the show, our what we call our term, our sister show, really a Python radio. But why don't you take a couple of minutes before we bring our uh, guest on tonight? Tell the listeners uh, that maybe who are not familiar with you, kind of your background and what you work with. Okay. Well, uh, I've been keeping reptiles since I was about six years old. Um, my reptile addiction, I guess you would say, started when uh, I took a trip to the Natural History Museum in uh, Philadelphia. And uh, I was super excited because I was going to go see some dinosaur bones, but the exhibit was closed. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, they had some kind of animal show going on. Uh, so, of course, they pulled out a royal python. Um <laughs> High end. <laughs> That's right. And, uh, you know, I was hooked from there. Uh, I, I became obsessed with snakes. Uh, my first snake was a garter snake. Uh, I went from garter snake to corn snakes uh, to eventually uh, getting Burmese pythons. Um, and I kept reptiles till I was about 13. Then I became obsessed with guitars. And yep. uh, I kind of got out of it for a while. Uh, I came back in about 2003. Uh, just started really focusing on keeping. I never really thought about breeding. It was just about keeping. Uh, I had this idea that I wanted to keep uh, as many different species of pythons that I could that were available. I uh, didn't know anything about morphs or hets or anything like that. So I went to my first reptile show and was like, what is a het? What is a morph? <laughs> I have no idea. Um, then uh, I, I guess... From there, somehow, I wanted to – I started listening to reptile radio, and then uh, I started getting the breeding bug, so to speak, and uh, sort of led me to carpet pythons uh, because it was something different. And uh, that's really – I guess in about 2008 is really where the obsession with carpet pythons and Morelia began, and it's been a crazy journey ever since, uh, which led me to, you know uh, – the collection that I have, and uh, I think I have about 150 carpets and five nice. rows. Wow, wow, <laughs> wow! Well, you're you're, you're so. starting to catch up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, I, I know that you um, your collection and your interest, your focus is on carpet pythons. Um, you've had condors in the past, and and you keep some other stuff. I know because well, because I've sent you some of it. So, what else yeah. are you keeping besides the <laughs> Besides the Morelia? Um, I have a few what I like to call royal pythons. Uh, I like, the, you know, um, I, I just, I guess it's just back to that first introduction to reptiles. It sort of has a nostalgia feel for me, and I think they're just kind of cool snakes for themselves. Uh, what else do I have? I have some scrub pythons. I work with uh, Halma Harris scrubs. Um, I work with... Uh, what else? Angolans. Uh, I work with maclots, blackheads. Got, got your Borneos. 
Borneos, Bloods, Sumatrans. Yeah, I, <laughs> I got quite the group going on over here. But uh, always carpet pythons are the first love. So um, yeah, yeah, me too. Keep getting drawn back to them. So me too. They're well, very good. They are. They're uh, they're bulletproof, and they've got so many of the great uh, characteristics that that people love. You know, it's a lot of the same characteristics why people love green trees. Uh, yes. Size, uh, manageability, uh, just coolness of their appearance and their their attitude, and you know, just a, a lot of similarities. I think. Yeah, it's hard to beat a green snake with a white stripe going down its back. You know, I'm a locality guy when it comes to chondros, but I mean, yep. to me, that's the pinnacle of uh, of a chondro. You know, it's so uh, strange. You're a locality guy in, in the chondros, but you're a more freak with the carpets. I know. That's really weird. I don't know how that happened, but <laughs> just, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a weird thing. So It is what it is. Um, why don't you tell us, the listeners, some, some about the uh, the recent ongoings on um, really a Python Radio. You guys just had your, your yearly uh, calendar contest, right? Yeah, um, yeah. We just—I uh, think we're up to episode 222. Um, wow. We have about five more shows for the year, and then uh, we take a little break, and then we're going to come back in uh, 2016. Um, we've decided to sort of uh, expand our focus a bit, um, and uh, I think that in order to get uh, people into and appreciate. Uh, Moralia, whether it's carpets or chondros, uh, I think that you have to spread that net a little farther uh, to get people that maybe don't know about them. Right. Um, and uh, we're going to f- maybe hit on some some other Australian Indonesian reptiles. Uh, like this week, we have Zach Baez coming on, and we're going to be talking about blue tongue skinks. I saw that. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, so, I saw that. And then I, we have. I've looked. Uh, Go ahead. And I was going to say, and then after after that, we have uh, some a show that's uh, going to be pretty cool. I think is uh, a Bowen's Python Roundtable. Um, I know they're not Morelia anymore, but uh, we sort of <laughs> still put them in the group <laughs> with us. Um, Absolutely, so, uh, it's like the pinnacle, I guess, of Morelia. So, who's going to cool. be on the roundtable? Or you don't want to divulge the uh, the secret of information yet? Oh, uh, no, no, I'll share. Um, it's uh, Arif Lagel, uh, okay. Shad Gray, okay. uh, Casper uh, over in Denmark, and, of yep. course, uh, Frederick. Uh, yeah, oh, Successfully awesome. bred them three times. So, yeah. Fantastic. That'll be a great show. What's the date of that show? Uh, that is the 24th. Okay. Excellent. And uh, you're going to have our good friend Zach on talking about blue tongues. And uh, I'd love—I would love to hear uh, you guys do show do a show about uh, you know Indonesian monitors. I, I, you know, I'd love to hear that. Well, we'll we'll have to work on that for you, my friend. All right, all right. It's good to know the boss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, all right. Enough about you. I think we've heard plenty. Let's go ahead. <laughs> Let's go ahead and introduce our our guest. Um, Our guest tonight is Dr. Brad Waffa. Um, 
I met Brad and his wonderful better half, Shalimar, at ICAS uh, in August 2013. Eric, this is, uh, by circumstance, this is where I met you and your less than better half, uh, Owen, same time at ICAS. <laughs> yep, yep. Brad, uh, at the time, was a student of veterinary medicine at NC State. Um, now he's in private practice. He works at uh, Churchland Animal Clinic in the Hampton Roads area of Virginia. So let me get him on here. Dr. Waffa, how are hey you? Hey there, guys. I'm, I'm do- you caught me missing some condors, incidentally, So, uh, but, but I'm brown. doing very well. <laughs> brown noser. <laughs> Well, thanks so much for joining us. I'm, I'm sorry, uh, buddy, couldn't be here. He's sorry as well, but I know uh, you understand. Not uh, that sorry. You <laughs> <laughs> will be after you listen to the show. I assure you. We we miss him for sure. Well, um, it was great to see uh, you and Shalimar at uh, Tinley not too long ago. We got to you know, kind of catch just, up. Just- and- yeah, yeah. Just just a few weeks ago, I feel like we're still playing catch up from the trip. I know, I know. It was uh, it was a whirlwind. It it always is. It always is. Well, uh, Brad, why don't you know? We usually start off um, introducing um, our guests with kind of their background. You, this is kind of a little unique experience because uh, obviously you're not just a hobbyist; you're uh, a professional. So. Why don't you give the listeners a little bit of background uh, of yourself, your personal experience uh, with Condros? Sure, sure. I, it's funny that you say it like that because I still think of myself as a hobbyist. You know, I've I've been a hobbyist a lot longer than I've been a veterinarian, so it's uh, you know, right. it, it, it's you know, it's I've I've got professional shoes to fill now and different responsibilities and a slightly different outlook than I have previously. But you know, I've, I'm just like you guys. I've been keeping these snakes and well, keeping snakes, you know, for. My story is kind of like Owen's, you know, although not nearly as uh, well told. It, it expands back to the time I was a kid, you know, uh, like like many, I'm sure. I, I grew up in the Midwest. I was a dinosaur guy, you know, pre-Jurassic Park. Um, oh, yeah. I think we're all I, I'm sure you're, guys. I think we're all, <laughs> yeah, sure. I, uh, you know, I grew up in a, a, a cul-de-sac actually outside of Chicago and there, there weren't a whole lot in the way of herps there. Um, you know, some, so a lot of my dinosaur fixes and books, uh, catching bugs outside. We had, we had this little area in our backyard where, um, tons of trees, but no grass would grow. And our property line was, was divided by railroad ties and, uh, and rocks. And some of my, some of my earliest memories of my childhood was just walking that line back and forth, just flipping the rocks and catching whatever I could. Um, you know, my, my mom tells stories about the dead lizard she'd find in the, in the wash machine and in the dryer, you know, it's just stuff she'd find in my pocket, you know, <laughs> and that was, and that was my childhood, you know, it was just, was reading about it. I, I could identify everything that was out there. Um, not a whole lot in the way of snakes or lizards though, you know, some skinks occasionally if I was lucky. Um, probably, probably the first real snake I saw was a garter snake in Plainfield. I was at my friend's house, you know, when you're a kid, your friends always have the cooler houses, the cooler toys, you know, that's how it always was. And I, I remember my, my friend had this field behind his house and I was so jealous. And I remember we flipped this rock this one day and, uh, I'd always wanted to see a snake, you know, you you get excited about seeing that stuff in the wild, but there's something about when you finally see it and it catches you off guard, it just kind of startles you. There's something kind of primal. And I remember dropping that rock as uh, just as quickly as we flipped it because we were like, holy crap, there's a, there's a snake under there. And I remember when we lifted the rock, she was zigzagged. Uh, we dropped the rock right on her back. 
And I, I can't say, and I can't say, you know, I wish I could say at that moment, I knew I was going to be a veterinarian, you know, it's, it's not that dramatic, but, 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 you know, it was one of the first snakes I saw and it, it, it definitely still resonates with me today because, you know, in my years of, of then keeping snakes and breeding snakes, uh, I dealt with a lot of the same frustrations all of us did. You know, I had my share of bad veterinary experiences because I went to a quote-unquote exotic vet, and I, I saw somebody who really saw a lot of birds and, and saw a lot of small mammals and, you know, out of the goodness of their heart would take in a reptile when a lot of vets wouldn't, but really were not trained in that area. So, uh, right, you know, right. that was that was kind of my inspiration for going the clinical route. Um, you know, I, I always kind of felt an affinity for animals and decided, I, you know, that was what was for me, but... Uh, you know, combined with my interest in reptiles, it was kind of a no-brainer once I got out here that I was going to do and see a lot of that. So that's kind of where I am now. Um, why don't you tell us, Brad, a little bit about the, the hospital or the clinic that you work work out now? It's, it's not a, a, a strict uh, reptile uh, clinic or exotic clinic. Is that right? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a full-service hospital, but you're absolutely right. It's definitely more geared towards small animals. Um, I... I took the place of one doctor who was kind of interested in seeing exotics, quote unquote, but I think she was, you know, with all due respect to her, I kind of got the impression from the, from the management that she was sort of hit or miss. She saw the things she liked to see, not the things she wasn't as uncomfortable. And I, I think a lot of it too, was it just wasn't very well defined when she was there, you know, where, where her responsibilities were, what her expertise was. And, and so that was something I, t- I tried to iron out as soon as I got there. You know, I, I have dogs, I have cats, I love them both. You know, that's that's certainly where we get most of our training in vet school. But, uh, you know, I told the management right off the bat that I wanted to see exotics, but specifically I wanted to see just, I said, I'll see reptiles, I'll see amphibians, and I'll see inverts. You know, right. the tarantulas and things that, that make their way in there. Okay. And uh, I kind of I kind of made a deal with the devil because the practice owner's <laughs> practice owner's wife is guinea pig crazy. God bless her. She loves her some guinea pigs. <laughs> Okay. And she said, well, can you see guinea pigs? And I kind of I saw that look on the owner's face, and I said, yeah, I can learn guinea pigs. So I see I see yeah, herps, smart. inverts, and guinea pigs, and that's pretty much the – and, of course, dogs and cats, and that's the extent of what I see these days. <laughs> All right. Very uh, very good. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you mentioned to me, and I hadn't even really thought about this, um, that there is a specialization, um, I guess, in, in veterinary yeah. medicine. For, is it for reptiles? Yeah. Is it snake specific or, or what kind of specialization is the next step in you know, your training? It's a, it's a great question and a great thing to bring up because I think a lot of, you know, probably even my clients will never really be aware of the difference. And, and certainly when we talk about going and seeing your herb vet, when we, when we chat on Facebook and stuff, it's not really, it doesn't usually become part of the dialogue. But yeah, there is a specialty, just like in human medicine, if, if you want to specialize and become a cardiologist or a gastroenterologist or, or an anesthesiologist, I don't know who the hell would do that. But, uh, you know, if you, if you want to specialize, you know, <laughs> you have to you have to go on. You know, you do a res, usually an internship, uh, plus or minus a residency. Um, and then once you get those years of experience under your belt, typically there's, uh, you know, some case reports or, or other uh, publications that you have to publish just to kind of, you know, check all these things off the list. And then ultimately there's a, a rigorous set of exams that you have to take in order to pass and declare uh, your specialty. In veterinary medicine, there's kind of two different schools. There's, um, and they call these colleges. They're not colleges like when you go to university, but they, it's just kind of a collection of professionals. And, and there are what is called the classical colleges. So the classical colleges in veterinary medicine were like, uh, you know, cardiology, dermatology, neurology. And you could become a diplomate, which is like an expert. 
of the American College of Veterinary blah, Cardiologists, Dermatologists, Neurologists. Um, and historically, what it was was if you wanted to do reptiles or, or any exotic animals, you became a diplomate of the American College of Zoological Medicine. That was the classical college for reptiles. Okay. Um, in the last, I guess, 10 years, I probably should know the exact history, and I don't know exactly when it emerged, but there is a new college, and it is the American Board of Veterinary Practitioners. And basically what that college did was they kind of, again, it was just a collection of professionals, and they got together and they said, you know, these other colleges are really cool, and it's great that there's cardiologists and that there's, there's dermatologists and there's neurologists and anesthesiologists, but they said, you know, um, and it makes sense, of course, if you're going to be in academia or you're going to you know, work at a, a cardiology-only practice. But they said, you know, for a lot of veterinarians that go out there and they, and they plan to see a lot of different species or a lot of different types of cases, um, there needs to be, like, something a little bit more practical for, like, the general practitioner. And so they kind of came up with these very practical colleges. And they came up with it. You could become a diplomate of the American Board of Veterinary Practitioners. And then there were, like, these, these subsections. You could be a diplomate in dog and cat practice or small animal medicine or uh, equine medicine or feline-only practice. And one of the colleges is reptile and amphibian. Nice. And so, nice. you know, of course, when I went when I went to veterinary school, my original thought was like, well, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to become a zoo vet. I'm going to be, become a diplomate eventually of the American College of Zoological Medicine, because that's like, you know, you get to be top dog and be an expert in reptiles and amphibians. And then once I got there, I kind of realized, like, oh, my God, there's a lot of stuff. In that. Like, you have to know koalas and platypus medicine and polar bears <laughs> and like all this other stuff. And I was like, I, it's like, I'm not that smart, guys. Like, I, you know, I. I love reptiles, and I spend a ton of time thinking about them and reading about them, but there was no way I was going to be able to really focus on that and be great at it and, and try to keep track of all those other things, too. Plus, I like people. I like working with people like me who enjoy working with animals. I saw myself in a clinical setting, so I, I knew I wanted to go to the ABVP route. So um, one of the things that makes the, the, the ABVP route different, so the reptile and amphibian-only route, is that they don't require a residency. Their first requirement is five years of clinical experience before okay. you publish your case reports and take your boards. And so for me, uh, you know, going the residency route and not making very much money didn't make sense compared to going into a great practice that was super supportive, that was going to allow me to see all those reptiles and amphibians and just kind of start working my way there while making an actual paycheck, you know, uh, compared sure. to being a student again. So, so that's how I ended up in private practice. And, and that's where I am. Churchland, you know, again, was, you know, it's a, it's very much small animal at this point, but they're very, uh, very supportive. Um, in my first year out, actually, they told me, you know, I told them, like, I really needed a ward because so many of our animals, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, you know, green tree pythons especially, like, I can't just give them a shot and say, hey, call me in the morning. I'm sure you'd be, you know, feeling a lot better. Like, it doesn't work like that. A lot of it is husbandry. A lot of it is monitoring. A lot of it is careful observation. And I said, I need a ward to do this right. And so they said, okay, we'll design it, you know, lay out the blueprints, give us a budget. And so I said, okay. And I, I called Habitat Systems, and I put together this gigantic, uh, <laughs> you oh, know, like, man. dream my dream ward. And I figured, you know, aim high. And I came to the table ready to negotiate. And they, they were like, well, if this is what you need, okay, let's do it. So <laughs> we, wow. we put together like this amazing habitat systems herp ward, uh, you know, that was uh, of course geared to, towards my special interest at the moment, which is, you know, primarily our boreals, our boreal snakes. So uh, yeah, I've, I'm, I'm kind of living the dream right now. Man, man, that that's fantastic. And I'll just take this opportunity I guess you can tell our callers, our listeners, um, because I didn't even know that this was an option that they can actually send animals to you if they're yes. out of the state where you are yes. and they don't, you know, yes. they don't have a vet. They, they can send you an animal. It is, it, it's, it is such a luxury. It's so cool. 
Um, and, and I will mention, too, I'm not the only veterinarian that does this. You know, Dr. Scott Stahl has been doing this for a long time, although I don't, I don't know that he, like, widely publicizes it. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, you know, I mean, for the same reason, we ship animals all over the country for breeding loans or, or uh, you know, it was buy-sell trade, you know. And it's kind of crazy that we've never done that. You know, we all complain about, how, well, I don't have a good herb vet in my area, but we don't take advantage of the same luxury to get great medical care. And, uh you know, so so I've I've done my best to. I actually haven't advertised much yet. I've kind of kept it quiet, and you know, a lot of people that know me or that have worked with me have kind of passed the word around. But yes, we do accept patients by mail. Uh, there there are expenses and certainly risks associated with doing that, especially if you're shipping a sick animal. You know, sure. I always try to emphasize that. You know, so it's not uh, it's not always an ideal situation. But if you're out in the you know the middle of nowhere, you don't have a uh, a vet that you know or trust or that knows your collection. Uh, you know, by, by all means, we, we encourage using ship your reptiles because you can actually insure the animal for the, you know, the, not just the, the cost of shipping, but the actual intrinsic value of the animal. So, um, right. and, and, and honestly, it's been a huge blessing for me because if you, if you spend any time in the reptile medicine world, especially talking to some people that have been doing this for a long time, <laughs> it's frustrating. You know, there are a lot of people out there that really see these, unfortunately, even in 2015, see these animals as disposable, you know, they get these yeah. pet store animals. I get calls all the time. I field calls from, from young people who, you know, my, my Pac-Man frog is upside down. I just bought it 20 minutes ago. And what do I do? And I say, well, bring it to me, you know, and our exam fee, I think is 50 or 60 bucks. And they're like, well, I could get three new frogs for that. And, yeah. and I get that mentality. I've been there. You know, I mean, it, it's not it's not free, but at the same time, you know, what 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 our what our screening process is sort of automatically selected for just by virtue of you know the fact that people do have to pay for shipping and they do have to pay for an exam is a lot of the animals I'm getting to see are really high quality. You know, I've gotten to see some really beautiful chondros from some really amazing keepers that are sending me stuff that they they're willing to pay for. You know, if the, if it needs sure. a, an X ray, if it needs a CT, I mean. You know, if they get a, a, another clutch out of this animal, it could pay for the exam and the diagnostics four times over. So they're they're willing to to spend the money to to practice the good medicine, and that's really cool for me because I'm not having to cut corners and uh, you know lob antibiotic grenades. I kind of get to I get to do it right from the get go, and that's 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 fun for me. Man, that's that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. that's really cool. Wow. Um, Hey Brad, can you? I mean, we heard about what you're working with professionally, but can you tell us what you're working with personally in your personal collection? <laughs> yeah, sure. Chondra wise or, or otherwise? I would just say in general, uh, you know. Yeah. So and so, I'll kind of back up. I'll say, you know, I've I've worked with a lot of stuff over the years. I've been keeping stuff since you know as early as I could catch it. I I got my first reptile that my parents knew about when I was 13, and that was a couple of uh, rosy boas which um, I bred very successfully. In other words, I kept them together, and they, they produced a few letters <laughs> for me, so that was cool. It's your, it's your parents um, about. I love it. took me a minute to catch <laughs> Yeah, you know, so, so, I, so I, you know, those are my first boas, and um, it's funny, actually, those snakes, uh, you hear that rosy boas, by and large, or, or at least historically, people used to say, oh, yeah, they're so sweet, they never bite, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's not true. <laughs> it's not true at all. And actually, my, my, the first snakes that ever really tagged me were those rosy boas. And I ended up selling all of them on my way to college. And I thought, you know, I've, I've finally grown out of this. And uh, I went to a little school in the mountains in Suwannee, Tennessee. It's called Suwannee, or the University of the South uh, for the uninitiated. And uh, I, I was out on a date, actually, with this girl. And I got a call on my phone. Um, somebody said they, they found a copperhead scaling a building and they were all wigged out and they wanted me to come look at it, I guess, knowing that I'd had snakes before. And um, 
I, uh, I, I went out to the gym and sure enough, it's like October in Tennessee. It was 40 degrees outside and there's this ball Python that was scaling a building. <laughs> and honestly that ball Python, that sorry, Royal Python, Eric, uh, was, <laughs> was kind of right. what did it for me. It was, uh, I, t- I ended up taking it in. I talked to the bio department cause you couldn't keep animals in the dorm. They said, you know, no, it can be kind of an education animal. Like go ahead and set it up. And that was it. I mean, do you know anybody with snakes that can have just one? Like I, yeah. I ended up talking to the, you know, the department chair, and he said, well, you know, if you kind of want to keep track of them and do it right, I ended up with like 20 snakes in the, uh, in the damn bio department. And, <laughs> and that was, that was kind of, kind of took it from there. So, uh, I've been keeping things ever, ever since. And, um, I kept a lot of things that you guys probably would both be really interested in. I was really interested, you know, when everybody else was talking about ball pythons, I was really interested in like the exotic exotics and probably in the early I guess probably 2008 to 2010. So basically from late college through my graduate school years uh, down at, in New Orleans, I, I had ringed pythons. I had a lot of the liasis complex. I had, yeah, macklets, pythons. I had fuscus, water pythons. Um, I, was, I was just, I was working with some cool stuff at that point and Wilma pythons, a lot of Australian things. Um, nice. when, wow. I, when I got accepted to vet school, I was thrilled, but I, I was terrified at the same time. I thought, you know, I'm packing up my bags. I had 143 snakes at one point when I was in New Orleans, a lot of those babies, of course. But I just said, I, you know, I, I got to downsize. I got to focus. So I, I either sold or loaned away pretty much everything I had. And, uh, yeah, the white-lipped pythons went to some friends out in Washington State, caught a virus, oh, both no. of them died. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My first white-lipped python, man, was a 2001 captive hatched animal from Pro Exotics, and it was hand-raised, and she was a puppy dog. I still, If you search through my Facebook, you'll find old pictures of me with her. I mean, she was as tall as I was. Um, oh, yeah. Just wow. incredible Eric, animal. But, Eric's you know, drooling right now. I, I, I can just sense it. <laughs> yeah. you're, you're, you're right up my alley. Ring pythons, woma pythons, macklots. Eric, man, I, I'm, I had, I'm in. I had an, I had an unrelated captive bred trio of ringed pythons that I sold for $700 when I left for vet school in 2010. I don't think you could, uh-huh. you could get a yearling now for that price. Um, wow. Yeah. You, you know, you, you, you look back and kick yourself of course, but so it's funny. I, I went about six months with no snakes and then I was like, well, you know, I could, I could probably handle like some little colubrids and I got some locale colubrids and I like totally drank the, the locale colubrid Kool-Aid. And <laughs> next thing you knew, I was up to my ears and locale milk snakes king snakes and corn snakes and um and and somewhere along the way I, I don't know what got into me but there were I, I you know I just fell in love with some of these beautiful arboreal vipers and um I ended up you know I, I I've got a pretty pretty good head on my shoulders and I decided I didn't want a room full of like vipers but I, I just had to have some tremerosurus vipers so I ended up getting uh what are called some they're, they're actually called beautiful pit vipers tremerosurus venustus uh if you search through my facebook page or, or look on reptile report sometimes I post some really beautiful pictures of them I mean we're to nature you're going to find a, a neon green and purple snake you know I mean they're just they're so photogenic they're so cool I met Shal uh you know halfway through vet school and of course she fell in love with them too and um and and said she wanted a whole room full of them but i told her that wasn't very smart she was like well it's such a shame because you know they're they're so beautiful couldn't we just have like it's too bad there's no non-venomous snakes that are beautiful and sit pretty on a branch and are come in different colors and i was like well <laughs> and i told her about green tree pythons and like within six weeks she had her first pair of them she actually had them before i did she pushed me you know over that cliff 
and um, wow. you know it is what it is. But but so now we have a whole. You know, I still have my Vipers. We still have a Gila oh. Monster. Still have a few other neat things. But of course, we've got a room full of Green Tree Pythons at this point. Um, some designer, some locale. You know, it's funny. Everybody kind of has that like that theme that their collection revolves around. Some people really like the high blue stuff or the high yellow stuff, and I, we have a really neat theme. It's not a very cohesive one, but almost all of our snakes, at least the captive produced ones, came from friends of ours. We have animals produced by David Newman. We have animals produced by Mel Bernal. We have animals produced by Kim Burge. We have animals produced, you know, by, by Marshall, you know, we've got just some really cool stuff. We've got, uh, uh, some of Bob Kelly's animals. We've got, um, a a few little designer things here and there. We've got some Maru pythons that were produced by a a veterinarian friend of mine. Um, yeah, just all sorts of neat stuff. So, so it's a pretty eclectic collection at this point, lots of chondros, uh, we have the the venomous species. We have the what I call the venomish species. Um, that that I guess would include the the Gila, and we've got uh, a lot of Boiga. If you've seen, you may may have seen oh, on cool. Reptile Report. I've been working oh, with yeah. Boiga cyania for about I guess three years now, and I've got uh, second generation animals. Uh, I've got some more clutches on the way. I've been kind of teasing the market posting a lot of pictures and I just haven't let go of anything I've produced yet. Cause they're just, I, I don't know. I just, I love them They're And they're, they're so hard to come by, you know? Um, wow. So it's, Brad, it's a neat group right now. Brad, have you produced chondros? I can't remember. I have not produced any from start to finish. Probably the closest we came to was the, a clutch that we brought, that we bought from the, uh, the yes. veterinarian friend of ours. Yeah. The zoo vet, I, very successful zoo vet. And you remember, I think I sold you some yes. or, or yes. some I, animals. I, yes, I had three of we those. Had, uh, yes. Yeah, we had um, – it was a, a pretty large clutch. He couldn't get any of them eating. And, again, I don't think it's that he, he wouldn't have been able to. It was just more about didn't have time to do it. So, uh, you know, we offered to just kind of take them in. And he said, you know, listen, they're going to die if I keep them. So, um, you know, he kind of wholesaled them to us. And we spent a painstaking amount of time. This, of course, this was, a, a, you know, an aru aru pairing yeah. and it was you know all yellow neos you know, all yellow neos and they were um as as you probably know just so painstakingly difficult to start shell and i were like you know reading the books and watching the videos inventing new <laughs> techniques of our own and you know sometimes 45 minutes a night just to get one little animal to eat mm, i've been there been there done that yep yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> I remember that 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 was a big clutch, and you uh, you were quite successful in getting those going. We, yeah, well, there were sixteen animals. Three of them went to uh, another friend of ours. I don't think he had a lot of success with his, but I'm sure he probably didn't have as much time as we did either. And uh, the the other animals we kept here, and um, we lost all of, or we 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 successfully got all of them going except for one of them. And it was like you know how, especially with your first clutch of snakes, you're going to have a few mishaps you're gonna <laughs> and sure, it was sure. like we made every we made every mistake that you could make as a first time green tree python at, at closest as you would come to a breeder i guess uh you know all the mistakes you would make with your first clutch except we made them all one by one by one all <laughs> the same animal and this poor thing finally after like uh, you know we, we like for example we had the uh we had the temperature probe taped up in there with uh with electrical tape and like one day we come home and the thing's all like you know, rolled up in a ball, like half, you know, so we, we did the whole mineral oil thing and then, you know, uh, and, and then offered a cool little water bowl that we thought would be perfect for it. And then two days later, check it. It's tipped the whole thing and the cage is dried out. That's the only one that's like half desiccated. And, you know, it was like, 
every every daunting you could do with your first clutch of snakes we did and and it, it all was with this one animal and of course it ended up not making it but the the other ones did really well and we still have about four four or five holdbacks here that are all actually two of them are looking at me right now i wonder if i'm gonna, if I'm gonna feed them tonight <laughs> well the, half of mine look at me like that every night <laughs> yep. every night yep well, if um, they could well uh, Brad, tell us, um, you know, you mentioned you've got some designer, you've got some locality. What specific yeah. locality types are you keeping or working with, or do you, do you have a favorite locality type? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I, we have a we have a Cyclops animal. That was one of Mel Bernal's animals. It was a Cyclops-Cyclops pairing. And um, I, I love the look of the Cyclops animals, but it can be pretty variable, as you know. And, and ours is not the most dramatic. He's he's kind of a just a really nice, subtle tricolor. Um, we've always kind of hoped that if, and when, you know, we pair him that, that hopefully he will throw crazy things as Cyclops sometimes do. Um, you know, you got to love the Biox too. We've got a hand, we've got a, a bright yellow Biox and we've got David Newman, David Newman's tempera, the, that blue Biox that comes from God knows where. Um, and yes. she's a stunner, but you know, we, we don't know whether she'll ever breed again. She kind of came to me as a relinquishment cause she wasn't doing very well after, uh, a mishap that David could tell you about. Um, we have, of course, several Aru animals that are surprisingly high weight, considering that they're, you know, they're, they're yeah. bred in captivity. Um, nice. We have, uh, I have a, a, an animal from Ryan Burke, actually. Her her name is Mama Cass, um, because we got her at ICAS. We <laughs> hoped that she would be a girl because she ate so quickly and grew so fast, but she shed out some huge sperm plugs a few uh, a few <laughs> a few weeks ago, so she's a boy. Um, but she's a Kofi Abiak and, and she's just gorgeously high yellow and blue. Um, and then, uh, yeah, we've got a jackpot pineapple express animal from Bob Kelly here. Uh, cool little designer animal that we're, we're working with. I have, um, Sundrop who was an Eden snakes animal, um, that I spent about a year trying to dig up the lineage on and didn't have the didn't have any success basically trying to get Kim Burge borrowed him a year ago and tried to uh, pair him with popcorn and we weren't successful that year, but she, of course, you know, knowing more people, having a little bit more clout in the community actually dug up the whole lineage and she's been teasing me for a year. She keeps talking about, you know, Oh my God, I got to get you this animal. You're not going to believe what he's related to blah, 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 blah. And she's not been able to do it yet. She's had a lot going on in her life too. So, um, but he's a gorgeously high yellow animal uh, named Sundrop that I've been looking forward to learning more about. Um, we've got uh, one of David Newman's other animals, Tinley, uh, one of the Tinley Diablo babies in our possession now. Got we've it. got what was supposed to be a high, uh, high blue animal from Nima that has randomly gone mustard and has not changed <laughs> out of its mustard yellow in about a year and a half. So that's was kind of neat and exciting, and we're not really sure what she's going to do, but she's a female. Was that a, so. was that a, was that a red baby, Brad, or a yellow baby? That was a red baby, believe it or not. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I've got cool. her out right now. She's got a, a – she's like solid, like dull mustard yellow with a black tail, and we don't know what she's going to do. It's funny, actually, when I saw her as a baby – and learned about, you know, it was one of those animals that Shao was like, I just have to have it. And she went and did it. And it was one of those things I was rolling my eyes out. And um, I was, she bought it when I was away on an externship. I was staying with David Newman at the time. I was up working with Steve Barton. And he and I were looking at the baby pictures. And he and I were both cracking up and rolling our eyes. We were like, that thing is going green, man. That thing's going green. And uh, and it went yellow and it just stayed there. So joke's on us, I guess. Awesome. Yeah. Nice. So, 
Can you tell us about how you house your adult chondros? Uh, you know, what kind of substrate you're using, the size of the yeah. cage, uh, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. I, and I, you know, I don't know that this is the way to do it. I don't know if there is a way to do it, but it's it's certainly a way that, that where they really seem to thrive with us. Um, we use mostly Jim Sharphorn's PVC cages. Not not an endorsement. I've I've spoken with Jim before. I love the guy and I love his cages. But um, you know, I know there's other great ones out there. But these are are just the ones that seem to make sense for us economically. You know, Shal's an artist too, and so she was very like like I love vision cages, and I had a several when she and I met. She like I like came home from class and she'd thrown them all out. She was like, these are hideous. I don't like them. They're <laughs> you know they. <laughs> They're super functional, you know, but she was like, these are disgusting looking. They're both, you know, <laughs> anyway, so, and, and the, the PVC cages are really simple, you know, and if you get any other black PVC cages, they kind of automatically match, even if they're not exactly the same. Um, right. We like them, you know, they're, they're very economical. Um, we have, uh, yeah, from, from my, our adult females, we kind of have like, you know, the, I guess the three foot by two foot by two foot and the, the males kind of have the smaller, like two foot by 18 by 18. Nice. And we uh, have planned to, you know, when we do breed them, to just put introduce the males into the females' enclosures. I think that'll be plenty big enough. Um, for substrate, we've, we've experimented with a few different things, but the thing that, and it may have fallen out of favor with a lot of people, but the the what I've been using more than anything else has been those those piddle pads that you get can get for dogs. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, puppy pads. Yeah, like their diapers. Yep. That's what I use. I love those, and and yeah. I guess. I would say that with the caution that you have to be really careful with feeding, just like with paper towels, because mm-hmm. they are very fibrous and they can certainly, yes. if they drop a, a food item on the, pra- on the on the floor, they can certainly pull that right into their mouth. So, you know, there's there's no such thing as anything that's perfectly safe, I suppose. But what I love about them is you can drench the floor. They hold all the water without leaking uh, through the cages. And, you know, if you've got your herbs that set right, the, the just the ambient um, temperature will really kind of pull up that humidity and, and it's really nice for that you can go in and mist them really heavily and um and it, they they really seem to hold that humidity well for several days um right. you it know sounds I, like your sounds ahead. like your setup is is like identical to mine that's uh that's very <laughs> really? interesting we, yeah we hear so many different ways people keep chondros and that's one of the great things about being able to do the show is and and you hit yeah. the nail on the head you said you know this is the way that i do it and you know it may not be it's not maybe the best way this is this is the way that works the best for me and uh, And I I see people post photos yeah I was going to say I see people post photos all the time or I have clients that come in and they tell me about the way they do things I'm like damn that's a really good idea you know I've got to try that (laughs) Um, you know I I can't take credit for inventing any of these things but you know uh, it's it's worked really well for us Um, we use a variety of different perches you know a lot of it is just kind of what we've had on hand Um, and I have to admit like I can't say, like, this is the perch type that we use. We use nothing else. I've, I've experimented with a lot of things. I've been impressed with a lot of different things that work. Um, you know, we've got a lot of just straight PVC, some of some of which came with the PVC enclosures, you know, where it's got kind of that, that ghetto-fired uh, right brown yeah. on it that, yeah. that Buddy loves so much that off-gasses probably. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we've got... We've got some of the hex rods. We've got some manzanita. We've got some fiberglass. Got a little bit of everything, and it all seems to work pretty well. I think as long as it's um, it's sized appropriately for the snake, they they seem to thrive on kind of whatever you give them. Um, I, as far as water bowls go, I'm big on big water bowls. I like I like big water bowls with a wide surface area. Um, mm-hmm. it, just from what I've observed, like I, I think not only does the wide surface area help to keep the ambient humidity up, but they are well, as you guys know, they, they tend to be very high-strung animals, very stressy animals. 
And if they find that one spot that they like, they may not venture far uh, to seek water. And if they can just kind of lower themselves down to where they can find it, wherever they are on the cage, um, or, or without having to go too far, I think they're more likely to drink. So um, just something that we've done. And then probably the, the most personal touch, this is something that Shell and I kind of came up with together. Um, we have we have a little bit of plastic foliage in every cage. And the, the, the most economical way that we found to achieve that was to go to Home Depot and we get that quick right concrete. And okay. you kind of have to make a night of this. You're going to get messy, but you get some, some cardboard boxes, lay them out on the floor, and you, you make up a big thing of quick read. And uh, you got to go to Michael's. Go to Michael's first, of course. Uh, go to Michael's and get some, some of that, like, nice silk foliage. Okay. You can um, – if you go on Google, by the way, at any given time, it's like Michael's is trying to give their stuff away. Like, never just walk into Michael's and buy it because I promise you if you Google a Michael's coupon, you'll find that it's like there's always, like, an 80% off sale. I don't understand it, but it's always, like, it's practically free. Yeah. And and they'll usually accept, like, three different coupons at once. So call call grandma or your mom. Like, she's probably got a coupon too. Like, you can get this stuff. It's super cheap. Buy it in bulk. And you come back and just cut the stuff, make a little ball of concrete, you know, the, the, the insta-dry stuff dries within like 20 minutes and you just literally stuff leaves into these concrete balls and they dry, you know, I leave them to cure overnight. And then, you know, you've got 20 little foliage balls that will sit in, you know, any cage, every set them up. So nice. we did that. And, and not only does it seem to kind of, you know, it looks pretty and I think it probably reduces stress to some degree. It gives them a little something to hide behind, but the concrete balls uh, work really well. You know, they're heavy and they're kind of rough. And so when it comes time to shed, it gives them a nice something to rub up against too. And that's, that's been really successful for us. You'll uh, maybe after the show or sometime uh, post a picture of that on Facebook or whatever. I'd like yeah, to see that. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We use, we, and we use primarily just herb stats too, to run everything. Um, you know, the, I, I, or not just herb stats too, but herb stat two, herb stat four, herb stat night drop, you know, we, we yeah, pick our right. herb stats up wherever we can and, um, and nothing against spider or helix or any of the others, or, or I guess spider is herb stat, nothing against helix or, uh, or VE or any of the others, but it's just the one that, that I've used the longest and know the best. So since you're talking you about, uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I know you're going to ask the same thing, Eric, about his temps. Oh yeah. That's, yeah. That's all I was going to say. <clears throat> What's your temps yeah. as far as, uh, chondros go? That's a great question. So, um, probably on the warm side at any given time, we're probably shooting for like kind of a basking spot of in the 85, uh, degrees Fahrenheit ballpark, you know, with, of course, a gradient, you know, uh, depending on the time of year, sometimes we'll drop it five to 10 degrees as long as it comes back up to the, to that same warm spot. I think they do pretty well, but I would, I would, I would go on an ad and I can't take credit for this idea. Hang on one second. I can't take credit for this idea. Actually, I'd, I'd give a little hat tip to a Christian Stewart who showed me this a few years back, but, um, I, I would go so far as to say that I don't think temperatures are the most important thing when it comes to basking. Um, I think they're, they're a very close second, but I think one of the most important things and probably one of the most overlooked features in chondro husbandry is, uh, is the percent output. Do you know what I'm talking about? If you have a herb stat, you, you probably yeah. know. Um, yeah, when sure. you set your herb stat... Yeah, you can you can set the display, and I have all my herb stats so that they're you know I know where the temperatures are set at, but I have the display set to show me the percent output, because you can have a a herb stat and you can have a basking zone that will spot with your infrared thermometer, your little laser gun, it will spot at a perfect 85 degrees, and you could have two cages spotting the same temperatures on opposite sides of the room, and the one that's sitting right underneath the air conditioning vent 
will be blasting it out at 100%, and the one on the other side of the room could be just gently heating it at a, a mild 10 to 20%. You could get the same readings. You know, your infrared thermometer will tell you, oh, yeah, they're, they're both 85 right there on the basking site, but the snake will gladly perch under the one that's at 10 to 20%. The 100% output is scary. It's like huh. it's like the difference between, you know, being out in the sun when it's 70 degrees or, uh, you know, on a, on a calm spring day or, or being out at the beach, uh, you know, when it's also 70 degrees in the morning, but the sun is blaring down. You know, they there's something about that that they can feel something in their skin. Um, I don't know if it's scary or stressful or what it is, but they will preferentially choose the site that is not so intense. And if they hmm. are constantly choosing the lower temperature site, uh, at the exclusion of the proper temperature, just because the output is so high, they will be sitting at chronic suboptimal temperatures, and that is a quick mm-hmm. way to grow respiratory mm-hmm. infections or immunocompromise them in in any other number of ways. So, wow, that's, uh, that's you know, awesome. I, I, yeah, that's awesome. I I think it's important to know. You know, I, I think you know, saying 85 degrees is important, but this is where I think a lot of times. And, and I'm guilty of it too, especially if we're in a hurry. You know, people post things on Facebook. You know, like I can't understand why my condor is not doing well. He's not eating. He seems stressed, or you know, he's never basking appropriately. It's 85 degrees, but then you look at their setup, and they've got it in an all-glass aquarium, and uh, you know, where there's tons of visual stress in a, in a high-traffic room, and they're using a big, you know, power sun heat bulb to provide their heat. And yeah, sure, it's spotting appropriately, but it's it's not it's not quite dialed into where it needs to be. It's too intense and the snake doesn't want to sit there. And so it's choosing to be at a suboptimal temperature because it feels safer. That's, that's very, very interesting. I, I have not heard that um, before, but, but it makes sense that, you know, the intensity, it does. Um, the yeah. intensity can certainly be a factor and it's something that I've, I've never thought about and I've never, I've never heard before. Um, yeah. But I, I, I did know that Christian likes to use the Herbstat thermostat to monitor that the percentage of output but i was never really sure why yeah and i and i, and I think that's it and that was something he taught me really early on and i and i i i have had very very few health problems with my chondros and uh you know part of me i'd like to say oh it's because i'm an awesome herb fat but i think part of it too is just, you know, he was very gracious and <laughs> sharing that uh that information with me early on and i think it's important to keeping them properly so, Brad, if let's say you do, you look at your Herbstat and it's cranking out 90% all the time. So what do you do to change that? I mean, do you have to increase maybe the ambient temp- temperature of your of your the cage so it doesn't have to work so hard? Or what would you do? Yeah, that's that, that's a great question because, uh, it, you know, certainly when you get into the electronics of all of it, it can get really time-consuming and frustrating. The The very first thing I do is try to deal with the simple stuff first. And, and the, the, probably the number one thing I do is tell my clients to evaluate where it is in the room. Um, you know, often I have people that are just like, I love the experienced keeper that contacts me and I start asking them about husbandry and they're like, look, dude, I've been keeping snakes longer than you've been alive. Like I, <laughs> I know my right. husbandry and it's, it's not about like, do you know how to do it right? It's about what could you have possibly overlooked? Cause it's really easy to do when you're dealing with an animal that's so sensitive. Um, oftentimes I'll find that a client has a, a cage very close to a window or to a heat right. vent someplace where there's a draft, um, you know, and they didn't notice all winter cause it was pumping out heat, but in the winter time it's, it's pumping out cold air and now suddenly things are changing. Um, you know, especially if it corresponds to like a shift in the season, that's often when I see things like this happening. Um, you know, so, uh, I'll, I'll often recommend checking out the vents, you know, some cages don't have much in the way of vents. Some have some really, um, 
dramatic vents. We had some of our PVC, right. or especially our older PVC cages, have you know those vents yes. that you can totally open or close along the back. Yep. Sometimes yep. something as simple as just closing those vents uh, will make that difference. Um, something else you can do, this is something Christian did, was you can get um, like insulation material or the little bubble wrap type insulation. You can tape that to the side or to the top of an enclosure really, really easily to uh, just insulate the walls a little bit to hold the heat in, so it doesn't have the herbstat doesn't have to work so hard. And that's another thing that you can do to kind of, um, you know, kind of regulate that a little bit better. But again, you know, this, this is all contingent upon having a uh, a thermostat that is giving you that information. A lot of the things like you know, we have some old school Zillas that we use on some of our colubrid racks. Those animals tend to be a little bit more forgiving, but they're not going to give you that information. Um, a lot of even the the original herb stats, I don't think gave you that information. So um, that's where it's really helpful to have the nice equipment and to and to spend the money up front to do it right and to so you can see that. Sure. Wow, that's uh, really interesting. Um, what about as far as uh, feeding? Um, at, what's your approach to feeding and uh, the frequency? Um, so that's another great question. I will tell you where I have been probably most frustrated, especially managing so many animals, is in my records. Uh, and if you guys have any great tips for, <laughs> for like really foolproof record keeping when you're managing as many animals, and we've got probably close to 100 now, I'm all ears because I've tried everything. You know, I, I, I've used iHerp. I love Aaron's iHerp, uh, but it, but it is a little time-consuming to log everything. Um, you know, I used Degii years ago, but but you know, kind of the same thing. Um, I've tried books, but they get lost. I've tried little pieces of paper, but they fall off or get confused. Um, my latest thing is I've just been using a um, a dry erase marker, and we've just been kind of like writing the last three feedings, and it's you know, it's not going to win any record-keeping contest. That's for sure. It's it's hard, you know, to look back you know, at trends over months, but at least helps me keep track of like when they last ate. So, you know, for my adult condors, honestly, right now I'm probably feeding once every 14 to 21 days, which is pretty conservative, I think, compared to what a lot of people are feeding. Um, that's for adults, of course, you know, the babies are eating probably once every seven to 10 days, depending on how big they are. You know, our babies now are, are yearling. So they're probably closer to the, the seven to 14 day mark. Um, a lot of it has to do with when I have free time. Um, you know, I, I can't say every every other Monday night is our feeding night. A lot of it just comes down to when I have a free night and Shaw has a free night and, um, you know, what rodents we have available at that moment. But, um, you know, somewhere in the two to three uh, week mark is kind of when we're doing it. Um, we feed primarily frozen thawed mice, uh, although I've certainly offered them other things. You know, I've offered them um, chicks in a pinch. I've offered them rats in a pinch, depending on, you know, kind of what we run out of first. Um, we have some animals that will eat anything you put in front of them, and we have other animals that um, really don't, uh, you know, they, they they really seem to only like what they like, you know. I'm sure you've seen right. it too where some animals develop these, these really finicky feeding habits. Now, well, I will say I will tell you this. Um, just on a side note, reptile scan. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Um, yeah, we've got we've got all the QR codes on the cages. I've tried that one. Too. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and and I, I have to admit, I, I really did like that one. And I'm for what I paid for it. I keep hoping that they'll update it and make it even better. But um, I don't know if it was a bug with the phone. I, I honestly haven't used it in probably a year. But um, I, I just. I never got it to read very well. Like it always, I'd spend 15 seconds per cage fumbling with it, just trying to get it to scan properly. And I thought for as much as I, t I you know, time as I spent fuddling with it and trying to get it to scan, I could have just written it down on a piece of paper. 
Yeah, I had some similar issues with that, but uh, I guess they've updated it. One of the cool things that I like yeah, about okay. it is, yeah, especially with babies, is is that if you subscribe to, like, if you get a subscription, it kind of, you can kind of control whatever you want. But also, yeah. um, when you're feeding babies, if you take their weight, which I don't know uh-huh. if this really applies to chondros or not, but if you take their weight, you can see their growth, and it gives you a chart. It's sort of like oh, that's cool. out of what their yeah. what their growth weight is, which is it's kind of interesting if you're into that kind yeah, of yeah, that is neat. That's but, really uh, cool. I do have some uh, some questions about as far as feeding goes. Uh, some of them sure. have been uh, one of them was I think Buddy had mentioned this, but uh, a recent guest on GTP Keeper Radio stated that yeah, Major got it, Zoo, got it right. Yeah, nice. <laughs> yeah, in the UK, had begun feeding reptiles all fresh-killed rodents instead of frozen thawed yeah. uh, to keep the intestinal <laughs> floral healthy. Any comments on yeah. that? Thoughts? I, I think it's a really neat idea. I'll be honest with you. Um, I, uh, you know, it's 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 funny that you mentioned that because I had I had suggested that to uh, to several clients and. I can't remember if I was talking to Buddy. I might have been even suggested it to Buddy or, or somebody else that you know we we run circles with in our community. Um, I have uh, yeah, I lo- I love it as an as an idea, and that and was something you know again not taking credit for it, but something that had just kind of made sense to me. Um, Christian honestly had turned me on to it again when, when I got to you know see his collection a few years ago. He was talking about using Benebac, which is you know, and it's. I was the new guy. I wasn't going to question Christian, but like, I'm thinking to myself, like, okay, this is, this is for small mammals. Uh, it doesn't have an expiration date on it. Probably all the bacteria are dead. I'm thinking like, this is a total crock, but you know, I, I, I don't argue with what works either. And, and I've seen a lot of things that I can't explain in medicine, especially when you're dealing with reptiles. And I, you know, I just kind of took it for what it is and wrote it down in, in the back of my brain. It's like, well, that's interesting. And, uh, it, but always wondered, you know, like why would something like Benebac, which is supposed to be mostly lactobacillus and other things found inside small mammals, how would that possibly help a reptile? And then you think about it, it kind of stands to reason. They're eating whole prey. They're they're getting an entire dose of normal uh, mammalian GI flora anytime they eat a rodent. Why might it not be helpful, you know? And, I, and I've had some, some cases. It's kind of like when I prescribe Fortiflor or any other antibiotic for a dog. A lot of times people report that it helps and it can be a little hard to evaluate whether or not that's, you know, it's a, it's a subjective thing. Like, yeah, the diarrhea is not as bad as it was before. So, okay. You know, it can't hurt. Right. So I've recommended that. And I've, some of my clients have reported that it seems to help. And so there may be something to that. I, you know, I think it's, um, it's an interesting idea. Now, of course that comes with the caveat that anytime you're feeding a fresh killed animal or a live animal, any parasites, there's, there's, there's always that too, you know, freezing may kill a lot of bacteria, but it kills a lot of, a lot of parasites too. So you have to keep that in mind. Um, but I think if you're staying on top of that and you're watching your fecals carefully and you're, and you're getting your animals checked periodically, then, then, uh, you know, I think you can balance that risk reward ratio. Okay. What about as far as, you know, as of recently, I've been thinking about this is just as far as my personal collection, as far as a varied diet, I mean, yeah. Is it? Do you think that that's something that people overlook when it comes to uh, keeping chondros or pythons? And that's another really good question. And I'll say right off the bat, I don't know. I don't know that anybody does know. Um, you're probably familiar with a lot of the arguments for and against. I mean, the you know the the thing we always talk about is like, well, if you vary the diet too much, or if they they develop a food interest that's difficult to obtain, like you know people that give 
ball pythons, African softwares, like, well, you might not be able to get African softwares all the time. Um, right. You know, there's always the, the concern that they're going to, like, develop an addiction just for one particular food item. Um, that said, you know, if, if he's got those animals that are willing to eat everything and they, they eat everything you put in front of them, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with varying it. Certainly with any other species, I, I recommend varying it. Um, you know, you you got to you got to try to balance the diet and, and, and moderate what you're giving so that they're getting a, a full spectrum of vitamins and minerals and, and everything else. Um, then again, when you're dealing with a whole prey carnivore, the other side of the coin is they should be getting all the nutrition that they need just from whatever you're giving them. So I think probably right. the differences are going to be the most dramatic differences are going to be things like the amount of fiber they're getting or the amount of fat that they're getting per meal. Um, I, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a neat idea. What about as far as, and this ties into the other question, is that I found with my collection that I don't necessarily have issues with them being prey specific. Um, Mm -hmm. As far as cycle feeding, um, you know, I kind of follow that kind of uh, as a a part of breeding. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts on that? When you say cycle feeding, you mean feeding uh, sort of in tune with the reproductive cycle, or do you mean? uh, Well, yeah, yeah, basically – you know, feeding, uh, well, well, for me personally, uh, I I start maybe in June and I feed real Mm -hmm. heavy up until about when I start to cool down. And then I don't feed from basically December until about February. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think that, I think that makes sense. Um, you know, we're, we're dealing with an animal that at least in the wild is going to be kind of eating opportunistically whenever it can. And certainly there's going to be some seasonal variation, not, not just in terms of what's available, but also in terms of, you know, whether they do eat, I mean, your males are going to be off feed for a large part of the year anyway. Um, you know, so I think that's reasonable. Um, I think probably, you know, I've, I've unfortunately dissected more, more green tree pythons than I, care to recall, but I'd have to say probably one of the most common features that always surprises me is these animals that they look thin and they are just loaded with fat bodies. I mean, just right. loaded with fat bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they really do not show fat the way a lot of other animals, uh, even other snake species really do. Um, you know, and I, I think that as a general rule, animals that are not being cycled and not, and, and animals that aren't breeding, uh, I think probably eat more regularly than they even need to, you know, this is, this is not to knock anybody's feeding habits or, or timelines or anything like that, or to say that I'm doing it right. I mean, mine probably loaded with fat too, but, uh, you know, they, they really do they spend a lot of time perched, not exercising and a lot of time eating, which makes sense. I think when they're cycling or we're trying to get them to size when they're, you know, retired or living out their golden years or, you know, breeding once every three years, I don't know that a, a you know, once every 14 day feeding cycle makes a lot of sense. And in that, right. and in that regard, I think cycle feeding does make a ton of sense because there's, they probably don't need to be eating every two weeks. Right. Now, Brad, that, I, makes, sense? that makes perfect sense to me. And I'm, I'm glad uh, Eric asked the question. Um, I have the, the opportunity and the privilege to help, um, a lot of herpers transition into chondros, and and most commonly they're they're either keeping royal pythons or carpet pythons, uh-huh. and, and the two number one things that they immediately want to do when they get their chondro is to overheat it and to overfeed it, and it's yeah. probably because that's what's best for a ball python. You know, you get that ninety five degree hot spot and it's on it a lot. And, <laughs> feed it yep. and it eats once a week and you know just does great and uh, it's just really hard right. for them to see 
you know, a hot spot of 85, you know, the, because you can't really feel, you know, you put your hand in there and it just doesn't feel warm to them. And right. so, just, you know, that's what, that what I've come across. They just want to overfeed them and, and overheat. Yeah. And there's that, there's that peace of mind with, that comes with like when your new snake finally takes its first meal. Right. You know, and I right. think that's, I think that's part <laughs> of that impetus is like, you get that first chondro and you're like, you know, I've heard how, how sensitive these can be. And I've heard about how they get respiratory infections and I've heard about this and that. And, you know, well, if it just eats, like, at least I know I'm on the right track. And I yep. agree with you. I think people try too quickly. They barely got it, in, you know, settled in and they, they're immediately just trying to stuff food in its face. Usually it's too big or maybe it's, it's only used to eating live and it's, it's their first frozen thawed mouse. And then people panic, you know, and talk yep. about, you know, I get those calls like it's he'll he'll strike, he'll rap, but he drops it. What's going on? You know, and, and I think a lot of that just comes down to they're not established. They're not stressed or, or they are stressed. We haven't dialed in the husbandry yet. And, and we're just we're jumping the gun. Yeah, right. And they and they just look hungry all the time. You know, that's the other thing. Mm-hmm. They just they look like they want to eat. Every How week. can you say no to that face? <laughs> yeah. <Right. laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, um, you did an awesome job talking about the, the husbandry of the adult, and, and I wanted to talk to you about the husbandry of, of the babies, and you did a great job uh, kind of telling, you know, it can certainly be a chore to get uh, new oh yeah. established, um, but yeah. if you want to just kind of hit on just a couple of the, the high points about how you, you know, um, how you house and your husbandry habits of, of babies, and then I, yeah. I'd love your your thoughts about feeding um live or even frozen thawed lizards to to sure. get them established you know the the risks of scenting or or giving them a a, a live or frozen thawed uh, lizard yeah sure um well i guess i'll start with the first part which is just about kind of getting them established and and um I'm going to give a lot of hat tips here. I, I didn't invent any of this stuff, and, um, and and I learned from some really excellent people and some really excellent resources. Um, Kim Burge on her website, Southern Condros, has some feeding videos, and she goes like – it's funny, too, because she has like feeding trial one, feeding trial two, and I think she goes up to like four or five before it, it says like feeding trial six, success, and you can skip ahead to success and see the technique, but – I think it's good for people to watch like feeding trial one through five to appreciate like it's, it doesn't always happen. You know, it's, sure. <laughs> you know, it takes, it takes some time and it can be, it can be really challenging. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think tease feeding is one of the most popular methods and I think it's one of the most effective personally. And, and I think if you're dedicated enough and you spend enough time, there are some techniques that, that are really effective and her videos show that really well. I know hers aren't the only ones, but they just happen to be ones that I, you know, I, I can reference right off the top of my head and that, uh, and, and that I used, um, the tease feeding technique or slap feeding technique basically involves literally like hitting the snake in the face with a food item. Uh, you're essentially trying to elicit a defensive response. Um, and, and often, you know, if you're lucky and very careful when they, when they bite defensively, when they bite, they'll often that instinct kind of kicks in and they will wrap. And then if you hold your breath and don't blink and sit there perfectly still for the next 19 minutes, they may, may swallow the whole thing. Um, and that's still not always the case, but, but you get the idea. Um, something that helped me too, that like if you've been tagged by a green tree python or any, any other snake before, you know, some things automatically just instinctively that you can do that will make it try to bite. 
Like, you know, when you reach and you try to grab the snake behind the head or kind of mid body and it turns around and bites you, that's a right. great place to hit it with a pinky. Or if it's trying to run away, like there's the occasional, the occasional Neo that, that, you know, some people call runners. Like those are the ones rather than just grabbing it, I would gently kind of pin it with a pinky. And usually when it reached back and tried to grab my thumb, it would grab the, the pinky instead. And that could be really useful. Um, a lot of these things, though, like, you know, like I said, I mean, I didn't invent these. A lot of these resources are, are widely available. I guess if I had anything new to share, a technique that I could share, uh, I, I guess I would have to brag on Shal for a little bit. She she came up with a technique that only she could. Well, not only she could, but, but only uh, a true half-Filipino uh, girlfriend could. And that was um, – I, I came home from, from school careful, one night. Brad, it was, you know, careful. I know. The, careful. The, the lights the, – I walked into the snake room. The lights were dimmed. Uh, and she's on the floor, legs crossed, Indian style. She's got a green tree python baby, you know, right there on the carpet, and she's got chopsticks. And I'm like, Chow, what, like, what are you, what are you doing with chopsticks? And she was like, I couldn't find your tongs. You never put the tongs back. Blah 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 blah. She's using chopsticks because she's an expert with them. But the chopstick <laughs> technique was so effective. You know how you'd get occasionally that one condor that would never strike, and then finally, like after 20 minutes of, of painstaking tease feeding it would strike and then the, the pinky was so mashed up against the tongs at that point that it like would stick to the tongs and the snake would let go right. well you can never you can never quite hold anything well with chopsticks anyway at least i can't uh you know she's got that perfect dexterity with chopsticks if you're any good with chopsticks and you feed pinkies with chopsticks they they come out easily if the if the snake catches half a tooth on one it's going to come off of the chopsticks and into its mouth and nice. uh and that was not something we read about anywhere. It was sort of, uh, you know, the, what, what is it, necessities, the mother of invention or whatever. She that was, that was something she just made up, and it worked amazingly well. She had me Indian style on the floor in two days with chopsticks feeding baby green tree pythons, and it was very, very effective. <laughs> so so she, she made it look good, though. I, I just look kind of goofy. But she, uh, yeah, it works very well. So I often recommend people trying that if you've got a few that will strike, but you just can't quite get them to take. Yeah, nice, nice. Buddy turned me you know, on you, to a pair of, of feeding forceps that are very similar to that, and I I think maybe I've shared it with Eric. We've shared it on this show and on Facebook a couple of times. But they're they're um, they're the feeding forceps, and they don't have the little serrated edges on the you know on the very oh, front. Okay. That, yeah, yeah. They tend to hold the prey, um, so they slip off real easy. They're actually um, the you know those guys that collect uh, miniature trains and do all those very elaborate building of the train uh sets you know they put the little pieces together they're uh they're made yeah. for that but buddy found them oh, interesting they've been very effective great. i can send you the link uh, if you ever get interested but oh uh, i'd love to see yeah that's really cool yeah they're fantastic yeah, they great yeah they're yeah great. you got them don't you? yeah don't you eric yeah i got a couple pairs <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too <laughs> you had mentioned um you had mentioned caging and i think that's another good point because we definitely house our babies differently than our adults um probably the most luck i've had has been in uh in typical rack systems you know and yeah. if you've got small enough racks for like your for your really your youngins your your little eight uh eight quart tub racks yeah. i think even bottom heat uh you know belly heat works very well because they're they're small enough that they they create the ambient heat that they really need and the and the gradient over the length of the shoebox. um we uh, we graduated some of ours. In fact, I and, and I'll, I'll step back here and say I love animal plastics. I have a lot of uh, animal plastics for some of my other adult snake species. Um, so nothing against their products, but but I had this great idea 
uh, a few years back to try one of their economy racks, which is cut so that it is, um, you know, it's kind of open on like three sides. Yes. Do, you, do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I, I, I've got one, a CD70 for my ball pythons. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure they probably work great for them. It, the, like they seemed really intuitive to me. I was like, hey, you know, I can put the uh, the 15 quart shoe boxes in here. There's enough. It's it's open enough to where there's a, a bit of a natural light cycle. They're heated just like the other ones are. Um, you know, I, they're a little bit bigger, so you can kind of graduate snakes up to these. We've um, and and I have I have one actually that still has some condors in it, and we've um, it, it's worked reasonably well for the certain cages that we've selected. But by and large, that was not a good experience for us when we moved our snakes over. Um, I think the main reason, well, several reasons, one being that, uh, you know, the, the belly heat works well in the, in, you know, the small condensed eight quart racks because it's all contained, but in an right. economy rack, your, your belly heat is zigzagged. So there's going to be at least one, one, every other cage along the column is not going to be getting heat along the side. Uh, it's uh, just getting basic belly heat and it's exposed enough to where it doesn't really seem to hold the heat that well. We dealt with a lot of uh, transient RIs that, that pretty, you know, almost all but disappeared as soon as we moved them over to, to different cages. Um, and again, I think that was just had to do with, uh, you, know, you know, stress and inadequate temperatures. Um, it's a nice rack. It just didn't work great for our boils, but, but I think okay. something of the same size, you know, eight, eight quart and then graduated to the 15 quart. That's something that's worked pretty well for us uh, as we've gone from, you know, the real young ones to the slightly bigger ones. Um, you know, I think maybe and, you know, and then the, the same rules apply. I was going to say, I think one of the, maybe the disadvantages of those economy racks is, um, is, you know, maybe too much ambient light. You get the light on the sides, um, you know, mine just yeah. seems so well in the, in the really the dark, you know, really a very dark yeah. environment, really almost day and night. Yeah. It's just, you know, yep. they just seem well there. Yeah. There's a, um, I don't know if you saw it, Tinley, but when you passed uh, the, the, the big table with all the books, I picked up a yep. uh, a, a book this year. Um, I think I, I'm trying to recall off the top of my head. I think it was called like Biology of the of Boas and Pythons or something like that. I have to admit, I actually didn't love the book. It was not what I thought it would be. Um, it was more like just a collection of manuscripts rather than like a textbook, is, which is kind of how it looks from the cover. But it did right. have uh, one really interesting study about the feeding ecology and spatial ecology of, of green tree pythons in the wild. And it was interesting. Um, I won't get into it. I won't try to summarize it. It was a very long article, and it touched on a lot of cool things. But but one of the things it talks about was the was how – green tree pythons of different age groups use use uh their their habitat in the wild and, and where they go you know and you'd find these adult green tree pythons sometimes 30 meters up in the tree basking at the top of the canopy whereas the smaller animals definitely don't seem to to stray too far from you know the branches right above the ground so um mm-hmm. it sort of makes sense you know when you consider the lush rainforest where they come from that you know yeah. those are animals that even though we think of them as being basking beautiful you know sunshine snakes they're I think they probably spend a lot of time in the dim and the dark, especially when they're young. You know, Buddy's a big believer, and I don't know what your experience with this is about when getting uh, babies established, feeding them during the day, as opposed to, uh, you know, I feed my adult and sub adult at night, typically have that yeah. night feed response, but he's had significantly better luck feeding baby green trees uh, during the day. And, and, and Interesting, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and, I, and I found I, that that I mean, worked I'm, well as well. Yeah, we. I mean, again, our, our, our we have an N of one clutch that you know the Rs that we raised, but we did find that there were some that it was like no matter what we tried, it didn't seem to work, and so just on a whim, uh, we tried some, and we did seem to have at least a few from the clutch that seemed to be daytime feeders. 
Yeah. And what the what the rhyme or reason for that is, I don't know. But that mm. doesn't surprise me because there does there there did seem to be um, a few uh, that that really did respond in that way. Uh, and, and if I could uh, kind of go back to that study for a second too, just while we're talking about things that surprise us about baby green tree pythons, one of the other things that I thought was really interesting was they documented that uh, they, they actually caught on camera some of these baby green tree pythons eating insects. There were like three instances of them eating moths, just snatching moths out of the air. I was like, yeah. that's not something we're that's not something we're doing in captivity, but it's apparently something that they do in the wild. And I thought to myself, wow. I was like, maybe we should be offering some of these finicky feeders crickets or something. Like, there are vipers wow. that start on crickets. It's not, you know, I can't say I've done it. I can't say I endorse it, but you know, it's it's one of those things that, you know, there might be something to it. Yeah, that's uh, that's very interesting. I'm trying to think if Daniel Natush ever addressed that. Um... On our show, or maybe your show, um, Eric, do you remember? Did he ever address uh, baby chondros with eating in the in the wild? Yeah, we had uh, we talked about it, and he had brought up uh, probably the same article about them eating moths in the wild. Oh, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> Um, you know, Brad, this is kind of the, you know, when we have a guest on, you know, it's pretty, the, the format is, is pretty uh, cookie cutter. You know, we come in, we ask them their experience, their husbandry habits. Um, yeah. but we're kind of, you know, with you were lucky in the fact that you are uh, able to now, and I'd like to maybe move into this part of the show to discuss some of the stuff that you get to see as a non-hobbyist. In other words, some, yeah. Some, your professional experiences uh, that you've had with, with chondros. And I guess the, the best way to start that we've, we've already kind of hit on the fact that if you can't find a, a vet that's willing to take or treat your reptile, then people can send it to you. So maybe you could just, if you want to give out the name of your clinic and, and a phone number that somebody could call and contact you, um, maybe now would be a good time to do that. Yeah, sure. Uh, the, the name of the name of the clinic where I am right now is Churchland Animal Clinic. Um, it's Churchland, all one word, Animal Clinic, um, and the the phone number over there is area code seven five seven four eight four two seven three three. Again, that's seven five seven four eight four twenty seven thirty three. Um, and and so you can certainly reach me there to to set something like that up. Um, and then, yeah, that's probably that's probably the easiest way to reach me. Of course, I'm on Facebook too, and um, and I, I I always try to I try not to mix the the Facebook and the business stuff too much. But certainly, if you reach out to me on Facebook, I can direct you to uh, the website. And of course, our I will I will mention too with a, with a, a degree of hesitation and embarrassment that our our clinic does have a website. It's churchlandanimalclinic.com, um, and we're in the process right now of revamping it. Eventually, we'll have some more exotic stuff on there. Right now, it is it is very templated and cookie-cutter for small animal uh, medicine, but but there is at least a, a field through the website where you can you can reach out to me, and I will get emails through the website as well, too. So uh, if you don't see anything about me or about snakes, even at this point, it's, it, you know, it's, it's you're, you're at the right place, churchlandanimalclinic.com, but we're, we're in the middle of revamping it right now. Great. And so, Brad, you could literally take if if you have a chondro and it has you know you feel like it may have an RI, put that chondro in a box, ship it to you, and you would house it and treat it uh, through the course of antibiotics. Uh, you know, I, I guess that would typically take a, a couple of weeks, three weeks. Yeah, and that's and, and that's often how I've done it. It yeah, it it kind of depends. Like 
when, anytime I take in an animal and I keep it, there, there is a hospitalization charge associated with that. And um, it's usually done by the, by the day. There's kind of three different levels of hospitalization. Level one is basically just like medical boarding or boarding. And level three means that, uh, you know, it's getting a certain amount of attention and a certain number of, uh, you know, visits and injections I, or possibly being I taken see, outside to soak in the yeah. sun. Sure. Okay. Yeah, exactly. ICU level care. And and the good news is even very sick condors usually fall into the, the level one category, which is like 10 or 15 bucks a day. Um, nice. So, you know, where, where it really starts to get expensive is if, you know, you've got an animal that has to spend two or three weeks with us, um, you know, you can easily rack up a $300 bill. But, um, you know, then again, some of these animals, especially your adult animals, your adult female breeders, I mean, when you consider sure, the sure. thousands that some of these go for, if we can if we can do it right and save her, then it's often a worthy investment. Um, well, and, and even if you talk about, I mean, I, I know there isn't uh, typically the sentimental value maybe that you would get with a with other family pets, but certainly if somebody's had a chondro and, you know, they've had oh a relationship God. with the chondro, uh, you know, that they're I've, willing I've had, to pay more than just the monetary value of the chondro to get it treated I've had some that were, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and I don't usually mention individual clients because, uh, you know, just the, the confidentiality thing. But, um, you know, Chris Wolf was actually very, uh, he encouraged me to talk about the case. He thought it was great that people could learn from it and stuff like that. So I'll, I'll tip my hat to him a little bit. He had a snake that um, that he sent to me that was, uh, it was one of the first green tree pythons that he ever produced. And if I recall correctly, too, it was also, uh, it descended directly from some animals he'd gotten personally from Rico. So it was like, there were just layers of sentimentality here. And, and on top of that, the reason he sent it to me was not because it was like dying of some terminal disease, but it was because of an acute injury. It was like the rare uh, trauma that we see, but it was, uh, it just, it ate a rat that was too big and it um, either broke or dislocated its jaw. And it, uh, he sent it to me and its jaw was hanging open and it had a, a, a secondary trigeminal neuritis and it's like, and its muscles were shrinking and it couldn't close its mouth and it had secondary stomatitis and a, and a mild RI and it was a mess by the time I got here, but but we ended up. I actually presented his case at the uh, at the ARAV conference this year. It was a really neat case, but it healed up really nicely, and I sent it back to him. And um, and, wow. and she's done great. Yeah, Fan, so, fantastic. Um, yeah, so it's always nice to see those, especially when it's like a special animal like that. You know, it, it kind of makes you feel good. Very cool. Um, I guess when it comes to uh, chondros, I think one of the things that I, Buddy, or Buddy, I said it again. Damn it, Bill. Bill, Bill you would agree with me. <laughs> Bill's our buddy. It's okay. <laughs> Bill, buddy. Uh, one of the things that you would probably say is that people are afraid of uh, respiratory infections with uh, with yeah. chondros. Um, what's your thoughts on uh, RIs and chondros? It's probably one of the most common things that I see. And, you know, I was kind of anticipating we talk about this. I was thinking about it earlier. And, you know, my, my, my whole thought process and, and respiratory disease and, and chondros especially, it's really kind of changed over the last year that I've seen a lot of them. Um, you know, I, I, I probably would have fallen back previously and just said, you know, a lot of these are opportunistic infections and they're, they're specifically related to husbandry and, uh, you know, they're opportunistic and blah, blah, blah. And I think all that pretty much still holds true. But I guess what I would add at this point in, in, in my, you know, conversing career is that it's not just that they're opportunistic and and secondary to husbandry or, or poor husbandry. I would say they're just, they're almost secondary to like anything that can cause stress. Um, I think the last one that I saw 
uh, came to me from um, it was actually it was local, relatively local. Uh, it was brought to me as a primary respiratory infection. We ended up sedating it for a tracheal wash, and I found a huge tumor in its mouth. Now, whether or not that is the primary underlying problem, I don't know, but certainly cancer can cause stress. We're, we're, that case is still pending, and we're trying to figure out what's going to happen with that. Uh, you know, one that I saw before that, I think I mentioned Chris's animal. You know, that was an animal that came to me because its mouth was hanging open. You know, it certainly had a primary underlying uh, a traumatic disease process that was responsible for that stress. Um, right. A case not long before that uh, was an animal that just, it came from a, you know, I actually, I happened to know the guy who produced it and the guy, you know, who, who bought the snake called me very upset because he just got it. And this guy's supposed to be super reputable, reputable, but he shipped me a snake with a, you know, a respiratory infection. I, I think it, it probably happened in shipping, you know, it's stressful moving an animal, especially an adult chondro, you know, we yeah. see that a lot or hear about that a lot. Um, you know, so that's secondary to the stress of shipping. Uh, one before that, I saw a, a really bizarre case. God, I could I could talk for hours about that case, but I, I saw a very bizarre case where all of the all of the green tree python's teeth had fallen out of its head, wouldn't grow back. Had it over a year supporting it, and it, it, that was a weird one. But guess what? It, it presented the first time with a respiratory infection, probably because. Mm-hmm. I imagine it's stressful not having any teeth and not being able to eat normally. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, so so I think pretty much anything that can cause stress can cause a respiratory infection. And it's not to say that we don't see primary respiratory disease in snakes. In other words, it's, it's not to say that you can't just have an aggressive bacteria that happens to get, you know, infect a snake's lungs. But, but I, I think that you know, when I hear about an animal having a respiratory disease, it's almost a big red flag to me. Like, yeah, that animal has a bacter- potentially a bacterial problem that needs to be dealt with. But as a veterinarian, it says to me, something else is going on here. We're missing something. Either it's something with husbandry or something with the change in seasons or we've got a cage that's moved and now it's too close to an air vent or a window. You know, it could be that power wattage thing that we were talking about earlier or there could be something else going on, you know, could we have follicular stasis? Could we have a, a tumor in the mouth? Could we have, you know, something else going on? Like it, like to me, it warrants an exam, not just because I'm going to want to culture it, not just because it, maybe it needs antibiotics, but because something is not right with this animal. And that is your first sign that, that something could be going drastically wrong and we want to catch it as soon as possible. Right. Do you have, <clears throat> what's the, what's, what's, what's usually the treatment for, uh, for our eyes, and can you talk about people's indiscriminate use of antibiotics when it comes to uh, at-home yeah, treatment? I, I guess. Yeah, I, I can touch on that. Sure, I, you know, and I guess I would say that, you know, again with the disclaimer that there might be something else going on, and and part of my job as as the vet is to try to find that when an animal is brought to me, but. But certainly if I think that I've got a, a, a chondro that may have a respiratory problem and knowing, you know, good and well that, uh, you know, even if it is just secondary to some other more important thing, the respiratory disease can kill that green tree python very quickly. You know, so it's very common. I will try to get these animals on an antibiotic quickly while I'm waiting for my, for, for my diagnostics to, to come back in or while I'm waiting to figure out what we do next. Um, you know, so, so I always kind of laugh when I get that question because in some ways I feel like, you know, I'm using antibiotics indiscriminately, at least, at least for a little while until I get my culture <laughs> results. But, but I guess my, my, my issue with people starting antibiotics at home just to wait and see, like, well, if it gets better, I'm not going to bother to go in. And I get that, you know, I mean, God knows I've spent a lot, I spent a lot of money going to the vet before I became the vet. 
Um, <laughs> you know, I guess my biggest issue with that is that we, we make a dangerous assumption when we assume that every time a snake is gurgling or blowing bubbles, that it is just a bacterial RI. You know, it sort of predis- it, it, it suggests that any time a snake is gurgling, that it, it couldn't possibly have viral disease. It couldn't possibly have a, a, you know, a protozoal disease or a fungal disease. It couldn't possibly have developed, you know, just a granulomatous inflammation in the trachea and is threatening to occlude the snake's airway and kill it. It couldn't possibly be cancer. It couldn't possibly be any number of other, you know, half a dozen differentials that cause gurgling in a snake. And, and so, you know, when we throw antibiotics willy-nilly at the snake we're potentially wasting precious time when we should be trying to figure out where the problem where the problem started to begin with you know so we can try to treat it appropriately you know these snakes can roll so fast when they get sick like that i I think you know i appreciate and 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 commiserate to some degree with people wanting to just kind of like cross their fingers and throw some petrol at home and see what happens you know potentially we waste the precious time and you know if i could get on a soapbox for a second i think the biggest frustration as a vet is when people take to the forums and they, you know, they, they solicit a bunch of opinions and that doesn't work. And then they take to a different forum and they solicit a bunch of opinions and that doesn't work. And then they're going to try like one or two or four more things. And then if that doesn't work, then they're going to go to the vet. And then by the time I get to see the animal, it's DOA in the box or they show up and it's like laterally recumbent and limp and neurologic. And they're like, can you fix my snake? And I'm like, yeah, like three fucking weeks ago, you know, like, like what do you, what do you want me to do? I'm not Jesus, you know, like it's, it can be, it can be frustrating, you know? So it's, I, I really appreciate my clients that have taken the time to develop a rapport with me. Uh, you know, they, they can send me a message, they can shoot me an email, they can, some of them text me, you know, I, I know them and I've seen enough of their animals, you know, and, and we just have that kind of a relationship. And I think it's so much more valuable than waiting until the last minute to, to try to get something like that under control. And then I guess the other side note too, totally other side of the coin is that, you know, and this is extrapolating from some of the human public health literature and from some of the small animal dog and cat literature, but there is a growing body of evidence that we share so many bacterial organisms with our pets. Again, this is, you know, going into dogs and cats a little bit, but like when we have, when we have bacteria on our body, your dogs and cats have bacteria on their body. We touch them, they kiss our faces, we pet them. You know, we share these organisms back and forth. It's basic biology. When we have an animal and we treat it with antibiotics, whether they're warranted or not, you know, we kill a gig- it's like lobbing a grenade. We kill a gigantic number of the population of bacteria in and on that snake. And whatever survives, those are the organisms that are strong enough or that have the natural resistance to to survive those antibiotics those are the ones that we select for those are the ones that are left over to replicate and to reproduce those are the ones now that become the default flora in and on our animals and my concern is that you know in in addition to everything else i talked about you know when we start throwing antibiotics around we're selecting for populations of organisms that are resistant to the stuff we commonly turn to the stuff that we use, you know, the, mm-hmm. the big guns, like, like Batril is a big deal antibiotic. That's a fluoroquinolone. Those are, that's like one of our big grenades that we reserve for like really serious infections in dogs and cats, you know, and I think about this all the time, not just because of my public health background prior to vet school, but, you know, I mean, Shell works in a human ER. There's not a day that goes by. She's not telling me about, you know, really creepy stuff. She sees these nasty purulent, multi-drug resistant staph infections and people's urinary catheters and IVs and, you know, people that like, well, they survived the motorcycle crash, but now they're like 
unconscious because of, you know, or, or, or really sick because of something they picked up in a hospital, you know, and, and I think about that too. It's not just that we're breeding potentially nasty bugs that we could transmit from snake to snake, but these are animals that may affect our families or, uh, you know, or us or our children or, you know, so, so I guess I use antibiotics very cautiously. You know, there are broad spectrums that I will turn to and use empirically and I can justify their use for a few days while I wait for my culture results to come back and find out if it really makes a lot of sense, if it's going to help my patient. But it's, it's not something that I just recommend, you know, throwing around like, you know, hey, this could save me 20 bucks. To, to me, in the long run, it's just not worth it. You mentioned Baytrel, um and Fortaz is another excellent example. That's a yeah. third-generation cephalosporin. That is a big exactly gun right. against a lot yep. of bacteria. And, you know, if you just empirically use that without knowing what you're treating, man, you talk about resistance. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You're absolutely right. Um, I like Fortaz as far, like if I have to turn and reach for something and again, justified because we're doing the diagnostics and we're doing an appropriate workup and and we're we're using it judiciously as part of a, you know, a, a, a plan. Um, you know, I like Fortaz because it is a drug that is not only very well tolerated by, by green tree pythons and by most snakes in general. Um, it doesn't seem to cause a lot of burning and irritation and stress. I like uh, it kidney, because in snakes, I can use it once every... Yeah. Yes, exactly. It doesn't, you know, it's not like our aminoglycosides like genomycin and amicacin that are really, really hard on the body. Um, but also, you know, and I think about this all the time as a clinician, part of my job when I'm dealing with a sick green tree python is to reduce stress. I think stress is one of the underlying uh, demons that that, you know, really hits these animals so hard. And, uh, you know, so I think about that, like every time I have to take the snake out of its cage and weigh it and measure it and examine yeah, it, and then I got to yeah. poke it and stuff, I'm, I'm stressing it every time I do that. So if I have yeah. a drug that will last longer, uh, that's, yeah. that's preferable. And, yeah. and ceftazidime or Fortaz has been kind of our go-to for a long time. I'm actually in the process right now, just so, so you guys are aware. Um, I, I'm, I'm looking into a new drug. Uh, there was a paper in, uh, the Journal of Zoo and Wildlife Medicine, I want to say it was 2011. This is how long it takes sometimes before things are published, before we actually really start paying attention to them. But it was a uh, it was a ball python paper, and it was looking at a, a cattle drug called ceftiofur, which is also a cephalosporin. Um, but at least based on the blood levels of that drug in, in ball pythons, it looked like that was potentially a drug that would have a similar spectrum of activity to something like ceftazidime, but it might only have to be injected once every five days instead wow. of three. Great. Which nice. would be really, really cool. Yeah, I think the the big limiting factor right now may be cost, but uh, I've, I've contacted a company rep, and I, I think with any luck we may be able to sample a little bit of it. And uh, so I'm I'm hoping to to get that in our hospital pretty soon, and I may, I may be trying trying it with future patients. It'll kind of to be determined. What's the generic name of it? Uh, what, the the, the drug it? itself is called. Sure, it's called Ceftiofur. Uh, Ceftiofur, yeah. E f t i o f u r. I don't think it's used in humans. I haven't heard of that. Uh, I haven't heard of that cephalosporin. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if it is, I, but I, I know it's used in large animals. I think right now it's labeled for use in uh, horses, cattle, and swine. And hmm. um, and so with any luck, it may be something that we get to bring in. I think cost will be the big limiting thing because right now, if it's labeled for any of those animals, especially something like swine. You know, they anticipate that the, the average veterinarian is going to use it, you know, on 100 different animals at a time, not one 600-gram right. snake, you know. So right. Uh, right. so we'll have to see if we can, you know, if they make it in small enough bottles. But that's definitely something I've got my eye on, especially right now because I don't know if you know, but um, 
ceftazidime is on back order just about everywhere. We still have yep. some bottles in our it hospital, uh, yep. but it's it's been on back order and it's been very very hard to get. So uh, that's that's forcing us to to reach for some things, you know, like some of the aminoglycosides that we've avoided for many years. Well, Brad, uh, we're we're quickly moving on the clock here. The the time has gone by incredibly quick, but we certainly can't leave um, pathology and chondros without talking about prolapse. So maybe you sure. could uh, <laughs> give us some of your uh, personal experience, uh, you know, just the cause of prolapse and, um, you know, how to address that. Yeah, it's um, – and I'll admit, I, you know, I'll probably only add confusion to the issue. I don't know that I'll offer much in the way of clarity. I wish I had some really great pearls. Um, okay. You know, I, there there do seem to be some animals that just seem to be wildly predisposed. And I don't know that that's something that they're born with. I think it's probably something that, that develops with time. Um, but but I, I guess I would start by saying, you know, all prolapses are not created equal. You can have, you know, I think we always assume that if they have a prolapse, it's almost always a, a like a, a colonic prolapse uh, um, from the cloaca. But they do have... Um, you know, of course, they have oviducts that they can prolapse. I've seen at least one of those. Uh, you know, they they can prolapse ureters. They can prolapse. Um, they, they can prolapse just all those things around the vent too. You know, so so I always recommend like if you have a prolapse, if it if it's easily reducible, you know, if it's really small and it goes easily back in, like you know, I, I get people wanting to try things at home, and there's a lot of great resources online talking about you know like using sugar and stuff like that, and I think that's okay, but. It's definitely not something that you want to allow time to dry out. It's definitely something that should be evaluated because some things are are easy to fix and some things are not. And I I do think that just like any other delicate tissue, anytime you have a mucous membrane like that that dries out or that gets stretched or that, that, you know, undergoes a lot of, like, inflammation and then later the, the, the scar tissue change that comes as a result of that inflammation, I think the more that happens, the more they become predisposed. And that may be one of the reasons that we see these animals that just come in on a chronic basis with reoccurring problems. Um, you know, I always recommend that people bring them in for, you know, kind of typical health check, like certainly parasites can cause things like that. I think one of the most common reasons that is not often talked about is chronic dehydration. I think, at least when we're talking about, you know, rectal prolapse, I think you have a lot of animals that just are not drinking well for whatever reason, whether that's they're not reaching their water bowls, they're too stressed to go to their water bowls, they can't find their water bowls, their water bowls are dry, their, their cage is too hot, whatever it is, you know, animals that are just chronically dehydrated are going to have rocky, hard fecal material that they're not going to push out well. And when they do, it's likely to pull other tissue with it. And, and I think that's often one underlying thing, but... I'll tell you, Bill, I've seen I've seen some animals that it, it can just be really hard to figure that out. It's like their husbandry really does seem to be immaculate. Their fecals are negative, um, yep. and they just seem to have prolapse after prolapse, and um, it can be tough to get under control. It is, it is something that can be surgically corrected, um, not just once. I'm not just talking about the purse string. I've seen some really, really good techniques described. There's actually a great vet in uh, Australia who, who – uh, wrote a paper describing a actually I think it was more of a white paper I think he published it on like like Facebook or his website or something but um, you know described how uh, it could be surgically tacked um, pretty non-invasively just like kind of from the outside and uh, huh. you know if, you, if I had a snake that was doing that uh, on, on a chronic basis I'd probably be pretty eager to try that for it although just I haven't it. done it just yet yeah right. um, basically what it involves is they they kind of put like a red rubber catheter up the, the cloaca and, and um, basically all that does is serve as kind of a guide 
Okay. And then what they do is they put a they put a little suture through the 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 ventrum of the snake and they put it through the red rubber. And that's always hard for people are like, well, why are you even putting <laughs> red rubber in there? You can pull the red rubber out. And when you pull it out through the cloaca, you can see the suture behind it. And what that is showing me as the surgeon is that, yes, I have passed this through. It has gone through the skin. It has gone through the other layers. It has gone into the colon. And it's gone into this rubber catheter, which means it's in the lumen. It's in the hole inside the, the GI tract. And I haven't, I haven't passed it through anything else. Does that make sense? I haven't passed it through the other side. I, I didn't just yeah. squeeze this poor snake colon shut, you know. Right. And so right. once I've... It, you know, and, and so that once I've done that, and I've determined that it's in the right spot that you can cut the red rubber away and uh, and basically just tie it down and um, and and know that now the the colon is kind of tacked and it shouldn't be able to you know stretch or fall out anymore. And sometimes that seems, at least from what he said, it seems like they kind of scar down pretty nicely and they stop doing it. But you know, again, I, I imagine that just like when we see megacolon in cats, a lot of that probably just has to do with chronic obstipation or chronic uh, constipation. You know, chronic wow. dehydration and and uh, and just stretching and inflammation with time. So, I think a lot of that, just like anything else, boils down to um, you know husbandry and management. Nice, nice. So that's something, uh, Brad. That's something. If somebody had a, a chondro prolapse, they they could send it to you. Oh, definitely. Um, yep. You know, and that's and that's one thing. Again, like I, I, I appreciate the publicity, and I'd love to see snakes from. You know, I've, I've seen snakes from all over the country, and I'd love to see more of them. But you know, I, uh, I, I would emphasize too, and, and point you to the uh, ARAV's website. There is a website called ARAV.org, um, and they have a find a vet locator on there. There are a lot of vets now. That's not, by the way, that's not just board certified herp vets. It's anybody like me who's not board certified or not board certified yet. Uh, but that that has a special interest, you know. If if they're found on that website, what it at least demonstrates is that they're willing to pay at least several hundred dollars a year to uh, to stay active in that organization. Probably go to the conferences, stay up to date with some of the herp literature. Um, yeah. You know, it at least indicates some special interest and some special passion. And if you can find a vet near you on those websites. I will also, sure. you know, recommend like keep your condros local if you can, because Absolutely. certainly shipping is stressful. Um, but, that, but I would emphasize too, Brad. What's that website sure, again? I yeah, of, co of course, it's ARAV Association of Reptilian and Amphibian Veterinarians. ARAV dot org. Okay, great. And, and and I would and I would add to that if you are looking for that, you should go to the website and not Google ARAV Find a Vet. Because if you Google ARAV find a vet, for some reason the cached website from a few years ago is still there, and it is not up to date. So, okay. so definitely go directly to the website and find the, the find a vet link. Um, I, you know, I guess that that would be me kind of like vouching for a lot of my colleagues. There's there's great people all over the country, but I will I will add to um, on the opposite side of things. If you can get a vet that has or sees a lot of chondros. <laughs> <laughs> I would recommend it. I used to. <laughs> I used to tell people it's really important that you find. <laughs> I used to tell people it's really important to find a good reptile vet to take your chondro to, and you know, like I said, in the last few years, as I really got serious about keeping chondros, I came to appreciate like they're they're very different than other snakes, and you can't apply. I mean, there's some basic principles, you know, the importance of thermoregulation and stuff like that. Okay, sure, they're, they're ectotherms. Like, a lot of those same basic principles apply. But in terms of, like, you know, the nuances of husbandry and feeding and, 
and their complicated reproductive cycles and their quirky behaviors. Like if you have somebody that really understands condors, I think that's far preferable. And so, you know, that's, again, with all due respect to the, the many great reptile vets out there um, and, and many of whom will go that extra mile to reach out to other people that keep condors, um, you know, but, but if you, if you have somebody and there, and then by the way, there's a, a half a dozen of them on the forums, they're probably, they keep their mouths shut. They're smarter than I am. Um, but they, uh, you know, they're, they're out there. So, so, yep. you know, by all means, if you can find a vet that keeps condors, I think that's great. You'll appreciate this, Brad. There's a local uh, vet here that I really like. His name's Roger Kendrick. He's a Texas A&M graduate, and uh, he, uh-huh. he will see exotics. He'll see uh, reptiles and snakes. I gave him a baby chondro six months ago. <laughs> so <laughs> That's Mark, one good way to do it. <laughs> I, I, Bill, I, I think you're on to something. I think if you really want your vet to learn chondros, I think you should send your vet a chondro. I think, let's, everybody right now, go pick out a, a, the prettiest snake from their collection. I'm going to give you my address again. <laughs> I did. That's I great, literally, I gave him the chondro and the tub set up, and he just he loves that animal, and I just feel like I, you know, we got, you know, we got this connection now, you know. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's, that's awesome. fantastic. You're even a chondro crack dealer for the vet. Tell <laughs> them the same thing, buddy. Told you that the first one's free. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. Oh man. Um, can we hit on uh, maybe egg binding in chondros? Uh, what's your thoughts on yeah. on that? Great question. Oh. Great question. Yeah. Have you have yeah, you seen that? Great... I have, and it's one of the it's one of the most frustrating things that we deal with because. <laughs> it's like it's like reading the fortune cookie you know that's the question i get is like is she egg bound or not because if she's not i don't want to send her to you uh, <laughs> and if she is then i still might not want to send her to you but i need to know if i should you know that's the that's a really really tough question and i, I wish i had a great a great pearl uh, a, you know if i could say like well if she goes this many days over the 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 you know post off shed then okay but um you know, getting those, nailing those numbers down is not always easy. You know what I mean? Sometimes like you think, you know, when it should happen, but you miscalculate a date or you misinterpret something that you saw. Um, and it's tough. They, of course, anytime you're they, shipping an animal miss, like that, they miss a shed, you know, right, right. Exactly. Or they miss You're exactly right. Or they miss a shed cycle or something off and they, yeah. Um, that can be really, really hard to tell. And of course, when they get to that point, if they are bound up, then they are, you know, I consider that an emergency that's high stress for, for you and for them, and, and they can die very quickly. Um, you know, so um, I, Brad, I Brad, guess I don't have question. a... Let me Go ask ahead. you a question. Is that typically something that you see, like they will lay partially, you know, they'll lay, maybe they'll they'll lay three or four eggs, and then, you know, you notice... The, uh, that maybe they're egg bound then, or is it the, or is it more common for them just to not lay, but they're overdue, and you just feel like there's just something wrong? Yeah, um, I, in my experience, probably fifty fifty. Um, okay. I like the, the the previous ones a little better because if I know they started and something, you know, it's like okay, well, it's about time. Like we're seeing the eggs coming. Um, you know, that's at least some indicator to me that like okay, well. They were they were basically ready and now they've slowed down for some reason. And I have seen where they you know, uh, at least in other species where they'll lay an egg or two and then four days later out comes the rest of them. So um, you know that's not always like a cut and dry thing, but but at least we know that like we weren't totally crazy and we didn't totally miscalculate the date because here they are. 
Um, okay. The other ones too is that like, you know, when when they really they start acting uncomfortable, they're they're you know back and forth from the the perch to the nest box or to the to the ground, you know, and they seem really agitated and you know, or you can see them. That's the best is when you can actually see them. Uh, sometimes you can see like the contractions um, where you'll see them pushing or they're lifting their tail and nothing's coming. That's a pretty hallmark. You know, if I see that and, you know, 12 hours goes by, it's, that's, that's an emergency. Um, you know, the tough part though, is that is, is then how do you manage them? And these can be, these can, this is where it gets really challenging because, uh, especially for, for breeders, especially breeders working with an animal that they're really hoping to breed again, because if I go ahead and take it to surgery, that's already a high risk procedure. And if I'm successful and the animal lives, there's a good chance that they really probably shouldn't be bred again. You know, there's a good right. chance that they will, they will bind a second time just because of the nature of the procedure. When you cut into the oviduct, it tends to scar down. You know, if sure. I leave it intact and I don't actually spay the animal, which I'd prefer not to, it's really a pain in the ass in, in, in snakes. If I leave the oviduct, uh, there's a good chance that it's going gonna, it's gonna to constrict down and she's, she's at high risk to do it again. Um, you know, on the other hand, uh, if, if I leave it, then she might die. But I think in a lot of breeders' minds, like, you know, well, if, if you're successful, she's reproductively dead anyway. And then I've just got another snake that might live another 10 years, but I've got a feed that I can't do anything with. So, um, and again, it kind of comes down to, well, what is she worth to you? You know, if she's a sentimental animal, if she's special, if she's important, if it's just something that has to be bred, you know, by all means, then, you know, we, we do everything we can, but if it's, if it's not, then sometimes it's just really kind of a wait and see, um, you know, use of oxytocin or vasopressin or any of those things like, I, I'm, I'm t- typically very reluctant to try those because they usually don't help. Um, yeah. If the snake can't push it out on its own, it's it's usually for a reason. Either they're adhered or they're occluded, uh, you know. And and so, uh, it, as a last resort, we'll sometimes go down that road. But I just haven't had much success with that. Um, are, are the I eggs will, typically go ahead. are the eggs typically viable um, in any any of those scenarios? Whether you take you it know, to surgery. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I was asking, I was talking to Scott Stahl about that recently because he's seen a lot more of these than I have. And he was saying that uh, he's he's never had any luck incubating anything that he's taken out uh, in okay. surgery. And I don't know that if that's related to, I, I personally doubt it's related to the anesthesia. I think it has more to do with uh, them not being very viable to begin with. Yeah, in my yep. personal experience with, with a few chondros and a lot of other species, um, I feel like I see more instances of egg binding when there is a high percentage of slugs in the clutch. And I don't know why that is, and I haven't seen a good, you know, published explanation of why that happens. But we do know, at least from birds, that there there is a little bit a little bit of hormonal crosstalk between the viable embryos and and the mother's reproductive tract. So I would not be shocked to learn, you know, somewhere in the the physiology literature, somewhere down the road, that um, you know, that sometimes these animals egg bind just because there's not the the signals are not good enough signals or not signals happening at the right time telling mom it's time to push these things out. And so they just sit for too long and get stuck. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, I was going to add one other thing about that. I'm trying to remember what it was. Um, I can't think of it. (laughs) No worries. (laughs) No worries. No worries. I, I, I guess I would add that we, you know, we do see, you know, as a vet, I differentiate between pre-follicular and post-follicular egg binding. You know, most people, when we talk about egg binding, we talk about post-follicular, which is where the eggs are shelled and it's time for them to come out, and okay. they don't. There is pre-follicular egg binding, too, which can be 
kind of extra challenging, and a lot of people don't think about this. This is one of the things that makes these so difficult to diagnose because they can look similar. But that's basically where they go through an ovulation, and, you know, the, the, the yolk is there, the follicles are there. They're not fertilized. It's time for them to resorb, and they just don't. And we don't know why that happens either. Maybe related to stress, but these big yolky follicles just sit there, and eventually they just kind of rot. They get nasty, and they, they necrose and become granulomatous, and they can become infected. And those animals can look very similar. You know, people are like, well, she, you know, she, I saw the big O, she got real fat. She's just sitting there. Uh, nothing's happening. She's, you know, skipped a few meals. She seems kind of punky. And the next thing you know, she's neurologic and she's rolling. And, um, and that may be related to something like that too. You know, others, unfortunately, condors only have like a handful of ways that they tell you something is wrong. And like one of their favorites is to just go belly up and start dying. <laughs> yep. So, yeah. that, and that's really frustrating, but, um, yep. you know, I think They're that's great. one of the reasons They're- why that sometimes happens. Yeah, they're great maskers, aren't they? Great maskers of disease. They they have to be, you know. In the wild, everything wants to eat them. You know, they rely on their camouflage. They rely on on uh, you know evasion. And I think uh, you know, so they if if you if you show any signs of weakness in the wild, you're food for something. So I think they right. are just experts at pretending nothing's wrong until it's too late. Well, you mentioning uh, in, in the wild is a great segue to the next uh, thing that Eric and I wanted to talk to you about. It, it's it common health issues in wild caught or or even farm bred uh, chondros. We we've had many discussions about the um, pluses and minuses of keepers uh, taking care of wild caught or farm bred chondros. So we don't I don't think we really need to address that. But I'm sure that there have been instances where you have. Uh, taken in and evaluated uh, animals that you either know or suspect are, are wild-caught or farm-bred. So maybe you can mm-hmm. discuss some of the common things that, that you would see in those versus uh, an animal that was born in, or hatched in captivity. Yeah, sure. I, probably the most, you know, we see a lot of the same things, actually, and, and a lot of, you know, them, them stressing probably just as, if not more easily, than, than their ca- captive-bred counterparts. I see a lot of this, you know, the same stuff we talk about with the other ones, but uh, probably the biggest difference that I see is just the parasite burden, you know, and um, I, it's funny, I, I will admit, I come from kind of a, I, I didn't go into it much in my intro, but my background before, before vet school was I did a public health program and officially, you know, my, my thesis was in, was on hantaviruses. So I was a virus guy, but I was in the department of tropical medicine, which is basically a modern euphemism for parasitology. Um, so, so I spent a lot of time studying parasites and, and the people there that did human, you know, parasites on the human side that did a lot of the public health stuff, their interest was, uh, you know, developing the world and their, uh, I don't want to digress too much, but, you know, they spent a lot of time talking about how, like, we don't see Crohn's disease in the developing world the way we do in the United States. And there has been a lot of talk about the, um, you know, the important evolutionary role that certain parasites may have played in, in, in our own evolution, actually, and that they, certain parasites, at least at low numbers, may have some important immunomodulating effects and actually calm down the immune system and, and keep right, it from right. being overreactive and creating things like irritable bowel syndrome, which mm-hmm. is to say that uh, you talk to, you know, different veterinarians, you'll, you'll get different opinions, but some are sort of of the belief that, you know, you get especially wild-caught or non-domestic animals and you, you see small number small numbers of little flagellated organisms and there's there's no clinical signs and no diarrhea like do you really subject them to all these drugs and try to like sterilize them i mean from a yeah. from a parasite standpoint and and right. i don't know like i i'm i'm that's not yeah i mean i i'm i guess i kind of fall into the camp of like if they're not sick and they're doing okay like i'm not really the one like i don't usually go bombing everything trying to like make each of my animals immaculate 
Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's there's certainly a place for it, and there's certain types of organisms I do not want in my collection. I think it's important to screen for things like crypto or pentastomids, you know, the really nasty okay. stuff. I want to know about those things, but but you know, if I if I see you know if I see a pinworm ova, I'm not going to go bombing my whole collection with you know fenbendazole. So, um, but with that in mind, you know, I think it really becomes important when you start dealing with imported animals. It's important to do fecals. It's important to look for some of those things because they can, some of them can be very environmentally resilient. You know, most snakes are not, you know, they're not like dogs where they're licking their paws and they're, they're, uh, you know, ingesting parasite ova very easily. So your, your transmission risk is a little bit lower, but, you know, certainly if you have animals where you, you move one animal from one cage and you bring another animal into that one, they do tongue yeah. stick all the time. They sure. can, they can pick stuff up off of their tongues. If they drop a rodent and you pick it up off of the cage floor, there's the potential for, you know, picking up fecal oral parasites that way. Um, or breed, you know, so, yep. so I think, uh, yeah, yeah. Or, or breed, breeding the chondros obviously is going to uh, potentially yeah. cause some of that, right? Well, you certainly bring in two animals close together. So that increases those odds. I, yeah, exactly. Um, then there's, uh, you know, and you brought up the point earlier, I never really addressed it, but with small animals or, or small chondros, you know, starting on things like lizards, um, freezing really does a good job, especially if you do it for more than a few days. Freezing kills the vast majority of parasites, but uh, certainly giving wild lizards or, or live rodents, um, you know, those animals can be vectors. In other words, they're the, they're the intermediate host for a parasite that is just waiting for the opportunity to get into the adult chondro where it establishes itself, uh, mm. you know, as a, as a parasitic organism. So yeah, you gotta be really careful with that stuff. Certainly. So obviously it's safe to say that if you do acquire a chondro, that is a, uh, quote unquote farm bred chondro, or you don't are not really sure of the source. It probably makes sense to have it brought into a vet for a minimum fecal examination. Yeah, I think so. And most vets, by the way, because somebody asked me this recently, they, they came to me really upset that they couldn't just bring a turd into their to some guy and he <laughs> wouldn't just look at it. And it didn't it didn't help, of course, that that guy like did not see reptiles at all. So he like was like absolutely not. But okay. you know, under under most under most states, before you make a diagnosis, before you prescribe medications, you have to have a veterinary patient client relationship. So each one of those criteria has to be met. There has to be a veterinarian involved. There has to be a patient involved, and there has to be a client. So it can't just be just can't be the vet and the client and, Hey, I've got some turds. Can you look at these? Um, okay. so I'm supposed to have a relationship with the snake too. Now in, it, with some local collections, we've made that very loosey goosey. I go to the house. I kind of make notes about husbandry and everything that's there. And I kind of have a very small chart for each snake. And if they bring me a fecal sample, I can look at it. Um, okay. you know, if, if you have two or three snakes then by all means, you know, you bring it in, but yeah, at some point, I mean, the animal should be examined, make sure everything looks good. I always recommend quarantining those animals, partly for, you know, things like viruses and stuff, but honestly, more than anything, just for really annoying, superficial things like mites, uh, really, really easy to transmit those and have them all over your collection before you even realize that they're on the animal. Um, and then, yeah, basic fecal exam to, to make sure that everything looks normal on the inside and, um, you know, to see whether or not any uh, dewormers are warranted. I know we wanted to discuss uh, uh, mite treatment Um uh, but I wasn't sure are are what you see in common domestic snake collection the the mites are are those mm-hmm. animals also in in the wild like there are there are snake mites in Indonesia there are you know the 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 one that we see most commonly the little black one we're all familiar with Ophidionysis natricus is a 
we, we don't know where that thing originated. Um, certainly it's been seen on imported animals uh, like ball pythons, but it's also been seen on Burmese pythons. And so some have said, well, it probably is endemic from somewhere. And now it's kind of worldwide thanks to the pet trade. Others have said that it's pretty much cobalt to snakes no matter where they come from. We don't really know where the damn thing originated, but it's, it's out there, yes. Okay. Um, in, in common North American snakes, uh, people that you know, bring me wild-caught stuff or, or hit-by-car snakes, like I will see ticks. I will see chiggers. You often see other mites that are like red or orange or some variation um, you know, that, that can probably be infestive, but it's not the one we're usually most concerned about. The, the snake mite. Um, the little black one that we all know is is the one that I worry most about. Um, yeah. yeah, it's been kind of widely suggested. Go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say I think we all do. We all worry about that one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it's nasty and it's tenacious. Um, it's been widely suggested too that it may be it, it may be responsible for carrying viruses, for transmitting viruses like you know the arena virus, like IBD that we all you know read about or worry about. Um, possibly paramyxo. Like we just we don't know. It's not really been well proven, but. Um, I think part of that comes from like a lot of those snakes that we see that are really sick also happen to be infested with mites. And is that because they just come from a seedy origin where they weren't well taken care of? And so they happen to have both or was one responsible for the other? We don't know. But, you know, I always make a note of that. If I ever see a mite or know that mites have been in a collection and like down the road, that could be something we think about. Um, I'll share one fun fact about snake mites that a lot of people don't think about. If you have a chance to pick up uh, and read uh, Joseph Kamen's work from 1953. The only reason I happen to remember the year is because my, my parents, knowing what a geek I am, they actually bought me an original copy of his thesis um, from years ago. It's kind of cool uh, in my little literature library. But he nice. did his entire graduate thesis, his PhD thesis, just on the snake mite. And, um, I, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of logistical hurdles when you're studying something as small and inconspicuous as a snake mite. But one of the hurdles he had to get over was like, he needed to be able to look at each life stage individually. So he needed to be able to keep track of where mites were and in what stage of development. Okay. So um, what he did, it was really clever. He, he recognized early on that this is not like a flea. It's not like a lot of other mites. It cannot jump. It cannot fly. It cannot swim, incidentally. That's why snakes love to soak themselves when they're covered in mites. And he used the fact that they, are, they do so poorly in water to his advantage. And he took each of his sample like he had like little 10 gallon aquariums with corn snakes in them. And he took each one and he just put it in a little Rubbermaid full of water. Super. I mean, really simple. If you had a rack, like if you had a, a shelf with four legs that touched the floor, you could literally put a cup, you know, each leg in a cup of water. And as long okay. as you're not carrying a mite out of that rack, it can't jump off of the rack. It can't fly from one cage to the other. The only, th- the only way it could leave that cage is either if you carry it out or if it tries to crawl out and as long as it hits hmm. that water, it's going to drown. Wow. So, okay. yeah, you know, so I, I think spatial separation in the home is, you know, is prudent and most people, you know, most vets would recommend that, but I always, you know, I, I, I try to remind people like if, if you have that one cage or that one quarantine cage, like put a, you know, get a little 32, uh, 32 quart Rubbermaid and just fill it with water and let the cage, you know, it doesn't have to be deep, you know, just a little half inch of water and just let it sit in there because if there are mites, you're going to see them. First of all, it helps you find them. And if they try to crawl out of the cage and into your collection, they're going to hit the moat and and die. So wow, that's that's a clever trick. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. That's a good piece of advice. How do you treat mites in general? That's a good question. So a little chondro specific. Yeah, Absolutely. Sure. 
So um, uh, there's a bunch of different ways to do it. Um, I, I guess the, the way that I feel safest recommending is with a very dilute concentration of, uh, of ivermectin, which I use as kind of a spray. You can use preventamide. I think that works pretty well, too. I just don't use it on the animal. But the ivermectin, if, if I dilute it to the right concentration, I feel pretty comfortable wiping the animal with as well as spraying into the enclosure and then, you know, wiping it, letting it dry, kind of like you do with preventamide. Um, I think another thing that really helps and that makes the, that whole ordeal even safer is if you can have two enclosures and you can clean the one and then move the freshly decontaminated snake to the other while you're cleaning the previous one and then kind of move them back and forth over several days. And I think if you're doing that and you have a little moat just as added safety, I think that, that really helps speed things along. Um, the biggest challenge is when you're dealing with an outbreak within an entire collection, because then it's just like, Oh my, I mean, that's a, that's a a long conversation. That's like, and it's a lot more helpful to, for me to actually go in and get to see the enclosures and see the room and try to identify like where, you know, like where's the epicenter, where's the high humidity. Cause that's another important thing to know about these mites is that they don't do well in dry environments. Um, if you, if you drop the, the humidity even to about 50%, which is still something that condors can live pretty comfortably in, you drastically slow their life cycle and you get it to about 30% and they start desiccating and dying. So, um, oh. you know, you can use that to your advantage too, at least short term. Brad, you, um, I found uh, a post that you did back in 2011 where you gave some advice about uh, treating mites. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? I think it may have been on iHerb. It you know might, yeah, about? I used to. I'm not sure which one. I, I used to write a lot of posts on iHerb. Was I was I recommending uh, the no pest strip? Yeah, the no pest strips. Exactly. Have you had? Yeah. I mean, you used that, or you still? Uh, that was you know several years ago. Are you still advocating that uh, kind of treatment, I, or is that? I still do. It kind of depends on the situation, though. I'll be honest with you. I've been very hesitant to use it on condros because I have seen too many just idiosyncratic reactions where I couldn't have predicted it. The snake just really didn't tolerate it well at all. I have okay. a few clients that are like totally on, like on it, you know, like they're, they're hovering and they're watching the snake and, you know, um, and something like that for, for those clients that were just like really, really careful with it. I, only because I think it works so well and it's so effective at killing the mites, you know, there's yeah. probably circumstances where I might, I might cautiously creep down that road, but you know, it's funny you mentioned it was in 2011. A lot of the things that I used to, like, advocate, like, I, I know I've done this half a dozen times. It's like when you get to that professional level, <laughs> there's, like, <laughs> well, one, you see you see more stuff. And, and when you see enough things, eventually you realize that it's not always so black and white. Uh, and, and the other thing, too, is that there's there's more liability. You know, it's like that's the other thing that drives me crazy is when I see people giving horrendous advice on Facebook. It's like you can do that because if that person's snake dies, you're not – held accountable uh, but if uh-huh. i give advice and and something horrible yep. happens then i you know it, it falls on me both legally and ethically and i feel like a sure. dick so uh <laughs> you know I, it's just it's, it's a little bit harder but i love iherp i used to spend a lot of time on there and, and i uh, i used to try to share advice as i could and and i i still think that the no pest strips work really well for the mites it's more about whether or not you're going to have one of those those really sensitive animals that uh is going to have a a reaction to it. And I, I just haven't used it on chondros and, and seeing as they're so sensitive to other drugs, I, I guess yeah. I've just been a little bit extra cautious. What's the uh, concentration of the ivermectin that you, that you recommend and then what's the frequency of treatment? Yeah, I, uh, I don't want to give you misinformation. I've got it written down on a little card at work. I, I think oh, okay. I got it from a California vet, but I, I want to say it's, 
it's roughly like 10 cc's to a, or, or one cc to a gallon or something like that. It's like, a, I can't remember if it's a one to 50 or one to 500 dilution or something like that, but it's a very small amount of uh, ivermectin relative to a pretty large amount of water. And the idea basically is, I mean, ivermectin can be injected and I've heard of vets advocating for that. Um, I think in snakes that works pretty well. Certainly other reptiles, you got to be extremely careful because ivermectin does tend to cross the blood brain barrier. But uh, it's a good way to try to kill any mite that is on the snake. I, I guess my my apprehension about that is like, well, good job. You've killed every mite that's on the snake. As soon as you put it back in the cage, it's going to be reinfested. So, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, rather than going down that potentially dangerous road, I tend to just be I'm kind of more of a topical guy at this point. And, uh, and I think just careful management, switching the cages and decontaminating and being careful and persistent is probably the best way to go. And then if you treat it, you would um, then repeat. Re- repeat the treatment in a week, you know, that, that yeah, kind of usually get kind of th- Yeah, kind of three to five days. And this is, again, where it becomes as much an art as it is a science. If you've got one of those snakes that is, you know, super hardy and he's thriving and he's eating and it doesn't matter which cage you put him in and, you know, he's doing okay, then great. If you've got that, that neurotic, like, <laughs> fresh import that's super nervous and it won't take food and, it, and you know, uh, you just feel like if you look at it long enough, it might just die. Then you might space (laughs) it out a little bit more uh, and and try to give it time to relax and settle in without, you know, moving it and stressing it too much. But I don't think there's a magic, a magic interval. The entire mite life cycle is about, is about two weeks, depending on the temperature and the humidity. And if you can, uh, but, but ivermectin seems to pretty effectively kill just about every stage, even the, the inactive stages like the eggs. So, I think right. you know if you get them within that three to five day window, and you're just persistent. I think I think you'll you, you'll get you'll you'll be successful in the long run. So do you just spray the cage down and then just put the snake back in, or what's what's your I approach? T- with yeah, that? yeah. I, I tend to to gently spritz the snake again. This is a very dilute solution, uh, and wipe it off the snake, and then do kind of the same thing with the cage. I'll spritz the, the cage, kind of uh, you know let it sit for a few minutes, and then wipe everything down give it a few minutes to off gas and dry out. And then, like I said, even better if you've got a, a different cage to put it in so you can give it a full 24 hours to with the cage door open to, to kind of dry out and off gas. But, uh, you know, then you gotcha. can move the snake back in with each treatment. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, they're nasty. They're no fun. <laughs> I dealt with a handful of mite outbreaks when I was, you know, kind of very early in the, in not the green tree python game, but just the snake game. And actually, uh, uh, probably the most memorable outbreak I had was with the uh, Macklitz pythons. I had a pretty relatively, you know, close collection at that point. I hadn't brought anything new in and I, I started finding mites. It was like a week after I had gone on a little behind the scenes trip to the Audubon zoo <laughs> when I was down in, in New Orleans. And I don't, th- you know, I mean, with all due respect to the Audubon, you know, I mean, but they've, they've got tons of stuff from all over the, you know, things are moving in and out. Uh, that was a different time period then too. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know, but, uh, it just goes to show you, I mean, I don't think you even necessarily need to bring anything new. I think if you go to a reptile show, if you, you know, you buy your rodents at a local pet store or get them from, you know, a guy's house where he happens to keep a bunch of snakes. I mean, these things are, they're not fleas. I don't think they're jumping on your legs the moment you walk in the door, but I think certainly if you go and you hold a few things or you, you walk around close enough and brush up up against the right table, I think you can, you can carry them with you. They're, they're pretty tenacious. That, that's another uh, excellent question, and, and I've heard varying thoughts uh, on rodents carrying uh, snake mites. But you, you definitely think that they're a vehicle. 
Uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, I couldn't prove it, and I, I kind of doubt it, but I will say that the snake mites themselves uh, have a, a really powerful tropism for the snakes. In other words, they seem to be able to sense where the, the snakes are. If you were to mm-hmm. drop them off in the middle of your living room, they would, I mean, they can somehow sense them from a, a long distance and can make their way there. I don't know I that the, I don't think the, I mean, I don't think they like hitch a ride on the rodents. I don't think the rodents play any like normal part of their natural life cycle. But I think certainly if you keep rodents and snakes in the same place, if you're a guy who happens to breed his own rodents and has a bunch of snakes, you know, I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility that you could go there and, you know, pick them up somehow. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, Brad, Brad we're, we've already gone into the uh, recorded portion of the show. We've we've gone past the two-hour mark, and I appreciate you. <laughs> oh, my God. I didn't even notice. <laughs> I know. It's crazy how how fast the time yeah. goes. We appreciate you spending yeah. the time with us. Is there anything else oh, that you wanted to d- discuss pathologically that you've seen in chondros that that maybe uh, certain cases that you, you've already described a couple that have been really cool? Anything else that you've come across that have just been like, you know, just really caught your attention? Oh, man. I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of cool things. I made a lot of interesting notes, um, you know, for sure. But it's a, Little little gems that I could share to close the show with. I don't know about that. I mean, we we could talk for a long time about some of the weird things that I've seen and some of the you know have, uh, new perspectives have, I have. Have you done um, Have you done surgery on say? I mean, uh, tumors seem to be fairly common in chondros. I don't know if they're typically benign or or malignant. Have you seen tumors? Have you treated tumors in chondros? I I haven't had the opportunity yet, but I've I've certainly seen my share of them. Um, and, and I've been privy to a handful of cases that probably some of us are familiar with, with the, from the forums where we've, you know, I've just been in touch with somebody afterwards and they've either talked about sending me just the corpse for a necropsy or I've sent them the formal and they need to send it off for, uh, for histopass. And, and unfortunately, a lot of the ones that I've seen have been malignant. Um, yeah. it seems to be pretty common in snakes that, uh, in fact, I have one recently. I haven't even had a chance to biopsy it. I mentioned the one with the with the small mass in the mouth, and so I've been doing a lot of a literature searching. And as you can imagine, it's not quite as simple as jumping on PubMed and getting like all the answers at your fingertips. There's just a handful of people that have looked at some of these things, and some of these papers are 20, 30 years old. But uh, unfortunately, it seems like a lot of them, uh, especially the tumors in the mouth, do seem uh, they're they're often they don't necessarily represent the primary tumor. They're they're uh, uh, like a met, we would call it metastasis from, uh, you know, another site in the body. And uh, so, of course, there's no way to know by looking at it. Um, actually, that's that's a good thing that I, I could end the show with, you know. Uh, this That's something I was thinking about earlier. Here's how I could end the show. I could say probably the biggest difference between me as a veterinarian and a, and a keeper, um, biggest difference between me and anybody else who keeps snakes, it's not that I have the answers. I, I do not have all the answers. I, I don't even have probably half of the answers. People contact me all the time. Like I shared this picture on Facebook and I got a million different opinions, but what is it? Cause you're the vet and you should know. <laughs> and, it, and it does not work like that. You know, what, what makes me different where, where my training comes in is I'm trained in being able to work systematically through, you know, a series of tests to get to the answer. And, right. and that's something that would be really helpful for people to know, because I, if I had a nickel for every time somebody reached out to me and said, like, can you please just help me? Can you tell me what this is? Can you tell me what I need to treat with? And I'm not saying no, because I'm a dick. I mean, I am a dick, but I'm not, that's not why I'm saying no. You know, I, I just don't, I don't know. You know I mean? That's, that's the, that's the long and short of it is I, I don't, I, I can't know by looking. Um, I tell people, you know, I tell my dog and cat clients all the time, if I could put my hand on this dog's lump and tell you, 
what it was, whether it was benign or malignant, what it was going to do, how long he has. Like, I work in a human oncology and make up, like, real money, you know? <laughs> and, and, and I don't. I work, I, I work with animals because it's more fun, I think. But, uh, you know, and no, I can't tell by looking at it. So all of these things, whether it's a respiratory infection, whether it's goop coming out of the mouth, whether it's a, a tumor right next to the heart in a chondro or a mass next to the eye or in the mouth, like, I can't, I can't look at it and know. Now, I might be able to draw from my experience, having seen a bunch of different things, I could make a few educated guesses, but I can't know, and I certainly, I certainly wouldn't make a recommendation that could affect the animal's life based on that. The only way to know is to do the testing. Yeah. And in the case of a mass, that testing involves capturing a few cells, whether that's just from a needle or actually going in and taking the chunk out of it with a little scalpel, um, you know, a biopsy, but that has to go to a lab where a professional pathologist who looks at cells all day long will look at it and then call me back and, and give me a diagnosis. And, and that's, that is what's most helpful. Sure. I mean, it's, it's understandable or, or gunk in the mouth. I mean, it's just, you can't look at it and see yep. what bacteria it is. You have to culture it. Yep. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. And, and that is the only way to know, you know, well, that was so, a, an excellent way to wrap the show up, Brad. I can't thank you enough uh, for for being on the show. It's um, Buddy. This was Buddy's idea, even though he's not here, uh, to have you on. And as soon as he mentioned it, I I jumped at the opportunity and said that's going to be a great show. Well, thank you so much for having me, Bill, and, and thanks, Buddy, for the idea, and thanks, Owen, for all the great questions and the stimulating conversation. I, I love talking to you guys. I love talking about this stuff anyway. I mean, you guys could get me on the phone anytime anyway and just chat condros, but but if somebody can <laughs> can possibly learn from me or if I have anything useful to share, you know, and I, I don't know that I always do, but, uh, you know, I, I love the chance to talk about it and, and help people that are going through the same stuff that I've gone through. That certainly was my my impetus uh, for becoming a vet was just knowing that it is can be very challenging to get the answers you need. And there's, there's not that many people who, who share the passion at our level. So, um, you know, if I can be of any help to anybody out there, you know, I'd encourage them to reach out to me and thanks again for the opportunity guys. Agreed. Well, thanks. Thanks very much. Yeah. Have a, enjoy the rest of your evening, uh, Brad, until uh, Shalimar, uh, we said, Hey, I will do that. Thanks again, guys. Really appreciate it. Have a good night. You too. Bye. Well, Eric, I can't thank you enough for uh, joining me. I know you're very busy with your show. I don't see how you do that show every week. We do it once <laughs> a month or so, and it, and uh, you know, I mean, it's it's a lot of it's a lot of work, a lot of prep, uh, line up the guest, and you know, uh, you know the drill. Get some form of an outline going and some dialogue, and um, so I really appreciate, and I know Buddy appreciates your uh, filling in, stepping in uh, for him tonight. Yeah, anytime. Anytime. It was awesome. Love uh love talking snakes and uh you know, it's cool to be the co host for once. <laughs> <laughs> you did a great job and um I thought it was a really good show tonight. Uh you know, every time we do a show, I listen to either your show or we do a show, I learn something new every single time. Yeah, I think that's the the great thing about these uh podcasts, you know. If if you can take one bit of information that maybe or think about something from a different perspective, uh I think uh the work is well worth it and the, you know, the job is done. So. Agreed. Agreed. All right, my friend. Thanks again. All right. Get some rest and um good luck with your show. All right. Thanks. All right. Good night. See ya.